Today is Friday, March 25th. The year is 2022. This is No Easy Answers, and I am your host, Jules Taylor. Today, like all days, I have no easy answers for you. All right, welcome everyone to another episode of No Easy Answers, a Marxist podcast about politics, philosophy, and the human condition. Today is a very special episode. It's a double release in collaboration with one of my favorite podcasts, Revolutionary Left Radio. Brett and I had a two-hour conversation about Alexander Dugan, who he is and what are his ideas, what is the Eurasian movement, how is he geopolitically relevant, and so much more. Uh, this episode will be released simultaneously on the Rev Left feed, so you can listen to it here and you can listen to it over there. Uh, and if you're not already familiar with Revolutionary Left Radio and the work Brett does over there on his channel, or the work that Brett does with his co-host Allison over on the Red Menace podcast, or the work Brett does with his other two co-hosts, Henry and Adnan, over at the Gorilla History podcast, uh, well then... Man, am I excited for you to discover all of that and listen to all that. It's wonderful stuff, and it's on my listen immediately list, you know, whenever a new episode comes out. Um, so for those of you who are already familiar with Rev Left, I'm sure you can understand how much of a treat this was for me to finally be able to connect with Brett and uh, speak at length about all this crazy stuff, you know. Before we get started, I want to send a big shout out and a thank you to Brett for collaborating with me on this project, and I hope he and I can do more episodes like this in the future. So, I hope you enjoy this. This is my conversation about Alexander Dugan with Brett over at Revolutionary Left Radio. Yeah, Jules, welcome to the show. Uh, this is a long time coming. I know that we've been sort of fans of each other's work broadly, and uh, we, we're, we're aware of each other, but we've never you know, had like a specific topic to tackle together, and I think we're going to change that today. I know on your show, uh, No Easy Answers, you've been doing a, a few back-to-backs on uh, Alexander Dugan, and that's what the, the focus of this episode is going to be. I think it'll be really interesting to dive into this stuff. And given not only the political element, but the philosophical elements of Dugan's work, I think you and I might be uniquely positioned um, to sort of, you know, wrestle with a lot of that stuff. But before we get into to Dugan proper and how you became interested in him in particular, uh, do you have any, like, caveats, any opening statements you want to make clear before we get into this stuff? Um, yeah, I have a couple things, man. Like, uh, you know, I, I want to say that although we're going to approach this episode in the way that we might approach an episode when we're first uh, encountering a thinker or a philosopher. Like, I want to go on record from the start by saying that I'm I'm reluctant to dignify Dugan with the title of philosopher. Um, and if we have time, I, I I just I can go into some of the specific reasons I have for that reluctance. Um, but that's only going to like make sense uh, within the context of the entire episode. Um, I'm also kind of expressly rejecting the notion that one must be an expert in Dugan or Duganist thought in order to understand or convey his ideas. Um, one thing that the writings of Alexander Dugan share with the rest of the fascist canon is that the writing is terrible. And I mean, if you read Dugan, his writings are very similar to like Julius Evola in, in that they're, they're badly worded, they're inconsistent, they're full of contradictions, and sometimes they're conspiratorial and deeply anti-Semitic. And I, I don't think the ideas themselves are fruitful or generative. Um, but the important part of this is that simply recognizing the project and the concepts 
uh, you know, hopefully that will go towards or do a good job towards uh, explaining, uh, you know, sort of the angles Dugan is writing from, um, because like a lot of ideologies or political programs, the bits and pieces can be gibberish, but, you know, it's that these ideas affect people in an emotional way and stimulate political action. I mean, that alone means they're important. Um, and, you know, we'll, we'll definitely be talking about like Russian nationalism today. And I just want to acknowledge from the get go as well, that there are of course, other types of harmful nationalism. And we have our own unique, you know, brand of harmful American nationalism and India with Modi has their own type of national going on. I mean, there's, there's just nationalism on the rise globally. And I know the word nationalism carries a certain connotation to Russians. That's, uh, they, they disapprove of that. And, I understand all of that. And so with all that being said, uh, when we talk about Russian nationalism today, we're talking about it because, you know, there's a war that's broken out in Ukraine. And I think that this needs to be part of the context and the analysis. Um, so that's that's what I have as like an opening sort of uh, preface. For sure. Yeah. With your uh, well, with, first with regards to to Evola in particular, for those interested um, obviously, Evola is an influence on Dugan, which we'll get into here. But over on our sister podcast, Red Menace, we are, we are tackling Evola's um, work, Riding the Tiger, next month. So by the time this episode comes out, this will probably come out first. And then a week later, that Red Menace episode will come out. But I think they'll make really good uh, dual, you know, complimentary listenings if, if you're interested in really trying to understand this stuff. And we also have some stuff planned on Red Menace to tackle the work of uh, Carl Schmidt, uh, the sort of fascist philosopher as well. So, uh, you know, these things kind of tie into each other. And when you have a full episode on Dugan and then you go and study Evola and then you study Schmidt, you're really coming to a pretty well-rounded understanding of some of the, the main elements of modern fascism uh, the, the world over. And then with just to touch on your point about your reluctance to call him a philosopher, I'm interested because, you know, professionally, he I think he is one. He works as a philosophy professor. But I myself sort of share a certain skepticism. I mean, he's clearly very well-read. He's read lots and lots of stuff, but when I've listened to interviews with him, explain his his ideas and his philosophy, even very sympathetic um, interviews with him, I'm not personally overly impressed. Like I don't really see like these fireworks of of novel intellectual creations, you know, um, coming forth from him. So yeah, do you have anything more to say specifically on why you are uh, reluctant to to specifically call him a philosopher? Um, yeah, well, you know, I think that um. Part of why Dugan is so, it's partly just that the guy is so offensive to me. Like, um, and what I mean by offensive is that, like, if you're a thoughtful person that values philosophy and sort of evaluating your own worldviews and working towards the project of egalitarian politics, like, it's offensive because he takes all of these ideas and he kind of turns them against you. You know, if you are a person of faith, which, you know, full disclosure, I'm, I'm an atheist and I, uh, my lack of knowledge is probably most pronounced uh, within the realms of theology or spiritual engagement. Um, but if you're a person of faith, which I, plenty of comrades are, uh, he also takes that faith and sort of weaponizes it in a certain way. Um, so in terms of like egalitarian politics, uh, in terms of uh, faith, in terms of philosophy, like he just the weaponization of all of these ideas uh, is something that is so greatly offensive to me that um, I, I feel like to call him a philosopher would be to deride the entire tradition of philosophy in some senses. Mm. Interesting. Absolutely. All right, well, let's go ahead and get into it. And then some of these things, as you said, might become more clear as we work through it. I I'm assuming that a lot of listeners out there, you know, above averagely informed, uh, especially with recent events, you've probably heard the name. 
Um, but I would be willing to bet that most listeners don't have a, a deep knowledge on, on Alexander Dugan. But before we get into his work specifically, I'm just kind of interested how you personally got interested in Dugan. And just generally, why is he someone worth understanding? Well, you know, man, I started asking questions, uh, engaging with philosophy. Like when the when the pandemic hit, I started a podcast as I went to a very existential place, right? So I um, started asking questions about meaningfulness and, and, and purpose and telos. Uh, and from there, I, I started reading some Nietzsche and Heidegger, and I and I understood that there's like left Nietzscheanism and there's left Heideggerianism. Um, but typically, like, uh, I mean, I just I just I started asking the question, like, why would anyone on the left be taking these ideas from Nietzsche or from Heidegger um, or from Carl Schmitt, for that matter? Um, so it, it, it began as a sort of like sharpening of my ideological blade. Uh, and from there, I read a book called War for Eternity by Benjamin Teitelbaum. And I didn't expect like books like on the genealogy of morals and and being in time by heidegger um and these works of philosophy to become the sort of context that floats around ben's book um and so in reading ben's book i became introduced to alexander dugan and understood that dugan um <clears throat> part of the sort of mystical character this guy has uh or the sort of mystic that he's viewed as comes from a knowledge and sighting of all of these various thinkers. And it turns out the guy is a, a deep Heideggerian. It turns out he has Nietzschean commitments. Uh, and so it was through my research into like why people on the left are taking these ideas, or should they be even, um, that I became fascinated with Dugan and the way uh, he utilizes these ideas. Um, and, and, you know, from there, it just, it kind of snowballed. Like I didn't, I, I had the interview with Benjamin Teitelbaum, and then I uh, started reading a book called Dangerous Minds about Heidegger and Nietzsche, and I requested an interview from the author, who is Professor Ronald Beener out of the University of Toronto. He's Professor Emeritus, and it turns out, and this is all public knowledge, but like he um, was actually the dissertation advisor to one of Dugan's translators, and then he resigned out of protest from that, and so I was able to gain additional insight from... Uh, Professor Beener about the dangers of Dugan and why he's been sounding the alarm since 2015 or so. Mm. Um, so all of this sort of fueled an interest. And once uh, once the, you know, the Ukrainian situation broke out uh, last month, I felt like this stuff was not safe to ignore anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. Um, I know like we'll probably get into it here in a second, but one of the things that initially you know, sort of interested me in his work was this, like, this fourth political theory. I think we can talk about whether or not that really holds up under examination, but this idea that, you know, I'm not a fascist, I'm not a communist, and I'm not a liberal. Um, it's an interesting first opening move, at least. Now, what you do after that says a lot, and I think we'll we'll see that he doesn't really get rid of the fascism right, uh, by right. any means. Um, but uh, perhaps he, he, you know, shifts it a little bit. But I think the ideas that he's promoting at least my understanding of them, and I haven't read everything he's ever written because he's written a lot, um, they're not really fully up to snuff. They're not totally original. Th these have iterations historically um, that, you know, us are aware of this sort of, uh, you know, whether it's you frame it as a right-wing communism or a left-wing fascism, this this flirtation on the borderlands between the left and the right and trying to integrate elements of both um, is nothing new for sure. But um, I think, yeah, I, we'll flesh this out as we go. So, 
uh, just to kind of open up, you know, maybe you could talk a little bit about who Alexander Dugan is, sort of biographically, what he's known for generally, and kind of the broad outlines of his specific ideology before we get into the details. Right, right. And, and I just want to totally echo your sentiments as well, that he's unoriginal, and we'll get into uh, some of that, definitely. Um, but as for, like, who Alexander Dugan is, um, you know, the guy's a lot of things, man. He's said to be a traditionalist, a philosopher, an author of more than 30 books. Wikipedia says he's authored more than 30 books, but Dugan himself, I've heard him say he's authored over 60 books. Uh, he is a geopolitical strategist, a political advisor, um, he's described as a fascist or a fascist intellectual, um, and I, I see him as kind of the key linchpin of the Russian far right. And Dugan speaks several languages, so his ability to publish in diverse media outlets and speak to different audiences, uh, combined with a bit of Western obsession, has kept him in the spotlight. Um, he's really an impressive aggregator of radical right ideologies. I mean, he mm. brings together stuff like... Uh, Volkus occultism, traditionalism, parts of the conservative revolution, uh, the French New Right, and Eurasianism. Uh, you know, in, in the 90s, after the fall of the so Soviet Union, he and Edward Limonov were key members in creating the National Bolshevik Party. Uh, he began his intellectual career as a critic of the Soviet Union. Uh, he uh, identify with some of the underground nationalist and spiritualist movements. Uh, some of these groups he were involved with were expressly anti-Semitic, like the ultra-nationalist uh, Pamiat. Um, and he was also a part of the Yuzinsky Circle. Um, and this was a group that trafficked in some of the main thinkers of traditionalism, like Rene Guénon and Julia Sevilla, who we mentioned earlier. Uh, some of the they also trafficked in some of like the German conservative revolution theories. Uh, they had a they instituted like a Masonic style initiation ritual. Um, and all this uh, as part of the Yuzinski circle was done uh, in an ironic denunciation of the political correctness of the late Soviet regime. And, uh, and it's ideological it was like in protest to its ideological rigidity. Um, and, and this wasn't like an expressly political group, but Dugan attempted to transform this group into an, uh, an engine for political activism. Uh, yeah. so, you know, he also, I mean, Dugan, he's a lot of things, right? Um, he eventually disavowed a lot of these ties and emerged as the leading spokesperson for Eurasianism. Um, and we can get into what Eurasianism is. Um, and he's most known for a book called Foundations of Geopolitics. One of the two books we'll probably talk about. Uh, and this was published in 1997. It's basically a, a manifesto for Russian expansion. It's looked at as kind of like the... Russia's version of Manifest Destiny. Mm. Um, he, he was a professor at the Academy of the General Staff. Uh, Foundations of Geopolitics was actually published with the assistance of the uh, Academy of the General Staff, which is like the Russian equivalent of uh, West Point, like a military school. Uh, you know, and so I, I think that's, that's quite a bit about Dugin here. Um, but that's, that's uh, I guess, a start into who Alexander Dugin is. Now, with the national uh, Bolshevism, he was one of the co-founders of that entire... Yes. Formation? Interesting. Yes, with uh, Edward Limonov. Um, and, and that's, I, right. you know, that's, that's who I knew as, yeah, Limonov is who I was aware of. I wasn't aware Dugan was was uh, equal uh, with him in, in the creation of this. Yeah, um, so, you know, what I know about Dugan, which is kind of funny, man, um, a guy named Charles Clover describes Dugan, uh, and we might talk about Charles Clover, and the author, uh, in a bit, Um but he describes Dugan during the early 90s as a sort of coffeehouse conservative, like uh, 
uh, you know, long hair, beard, guitar playing. Um, and uh, and Limanov in the early 90s was part of, a, of the punk scene. And he has uh, quite the discography of like punk and, and other types of, of music that went on in the early 90s. And, uh, you know, I'm an audio engineer by trade. So part of my interest in this uh, did initially get sparked from understanding that there was this huge underground Russian punk scene mm. um, that happened. Um, so yeah, it, they were co-founders on the National Bolshevik thing. Um, but they, I, I think they came together for, uh, reasons, uh, in addition to that, some of it being like this sort of coffeehouse conservative, uh, uh, bohemian sort of aesthetic or lifestyle mm. at, at that point that drew them together as well. Very interesting. Yeah. Um, now I've heard a lot of people talking about Dugan, you know, there's like this obvious go-to historical analogy they reach for which is rasputin right um right. rasputin's relationship to the romanovs but then like people call um dugan you know putin's rasputin um how deep is that relationship how much do we know about how much they actually personally know each other and discuss clearly putin is aware of dugan i'm sure they've met numerous times but is it like actually as deep as the Rasputin relationship or is it is it ambiguous? Well, you know, like Charles Clover, um, he's the author of a book called Black Wind, White Snow. Uh, and he writes about the kind of history of Eurasian ideas uh, as they evolved where they started from. Um, but he became pen pals with Alexander Dugin for over several years. Um, mm -hmm. Unlikely pen pals, he says. And so during these interactions with Dugin, he claims to have never found a link between uh, like a direct link between Dugin and Putin. Um and he suggests what the accurate sort of takeaway from this is that there's probably like there's motives within the Duma or within Putin that he looks to ideologists in order to justify. So he kind of like wags, he's like a wagging the dog kind of theory behind mm -hmm. that. Um, but, you know, Dugan himself doesn't even I mean, he claims openly to have the ear of Putin to say that Putin follows his ideology, is advised by him. Um, and, you know, when you look at some of the things that Dugan has written about as far back as 97, which is like the Georgian invasion, the invasion of Crimea, uh, annexing of Ukraine, um, uh, the, the entirety of like the geopolitical program seems to be what Putin is sort of aligned with during his third term. Uh, so uh, there's a lot of circumstantial stuff about these that people observe and are right to draw uh, uh, to notice similarities or and, and perhaps even draw a few conclusions. Um, so I, I I can't sit here and say, hey, there's a there's a direct line from Putin to Dugin, um, but there's a ton of stuff outside of it. Um, and like I said, I've been reluctant to sort of like, you know, to, to say, hey, this is real, this is going on. It seemed a bit conspiratorial uh, in mm -hmm. a lot of ways. Um, but the the geopolitical program being followed by Dugin or being followed by Putin, it is, uh, it's a big tip off. And I think that's kind of what pushed me to the other side of being like, Hey, this isn't safe to ignore. This stuff is, uh, seems like it's real. Like there's something to it. Um, so yeah, I hope that answers that question. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's very interesting. I know later we're going to talk more about what Putin's real motivations are, but I think that w where I saw the, the uh, coalescence, uh, between Putin and, and Dugan's theories was in that hour long, uh, sort of speech that Putin right. gave as he's commencing the invasion, which, you know, he's he's dressing it up in this justifica justification regarding uh, Belarus, Ukraine, and Russia really being one people. And I've heard Dugan talk about Great Russia, literally Russia, Little Russia, Belarus, and um, what he's called White Russia, Ukraine. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, I think and so. And so, yeah. 
Yeah, so, you know, in Dugan's philosophy, this is all one people, and there's an obvious need, first and foremost, to reunify um, these people. And Putin was definitely using some version of that argument in the justification. I'll get into later that I think that that's kind of a ideological sprinkling on top of an already material cake, but we'll get there when we get there. <laughs> right, right. And, and just, you know, the, the talking points mm-hmm. that Putin has adopted, you see the, the kind of resemblance of, like, those talking points he said versus what Dugan says, right? And it, it should be noted that there's, like, expressed sort of Eurasian vocabulary that's been picked up by Dugan as well, uh, or I'm, I'm sorry, picked up by Putin. Uh, so there is this adoption of talking points uh, and language uh, going from Dugan to Putin. Definitely, definitely. So let's go ahead and dive into some of these these core concepts. And the first one is Eurasianism. So can you talk about what that is and the role it plays in Dugan's philosophy? Yeah, um, Eurasianism, man, it's, it's a big sort of thing to define. Um, but I think it's helpful to think of Eurasianism as a sort of civilizational nationalism uh so it's it's a form of nationalism but it's more of a civilizational nationalism uh with russia at the core of a unique civilization that russia has dominion like so russia has this dominion over a core geography in asia um it is in a way uh, also like a multinational nationalism because you know obviously in the russian past it's been like a confederacy of nations you know um so uh, the idea of Eurasianism has only entered the discourse like rather recently, but it's it's not a new idea. This goes back to some of the unoriginality we talked about. Um, the first place this kind of pops up is in an article from 1904 from a guy named Sir Halford Mackinder. Um, and he wrote an article called The Geographical Pivot of History uh, for the Royal Geography Society. He was a, a British guy, a British geographer. Um, but in this article, he took a map of the world and he drew a big oval over all of Asia and most of Europe and most of China, and he labeled it Heartland. And then he drew an even bigger oval over that initial oval, and that included like most of the rest of Africa, the rest of China, and he labeled that the Rimland. And it, Dugan actually replicates this map with the ovals labeled Heartland and Rimland in his book, Foundations of the Geopolitics, and we'll get into that mm. the book in a bit. Um but some of Dugan's vocabulary and concepts come directly from the geographical pivot of history, um, like Heartland military capacity. He calls it land power, uh, with the rest of it comprising what he calls sea power. Like all this stuff is straight from uh, Halford Mackinder. Um, so there, there are some ideas also that came from there. Um, like Halford also wrote in this 1904 book, he said, whoever rules East Europe commands the Heartland. And so part of the idea of like of a, of a core geographical dominion by Russia um, stems from this uh, this work of Halford Mackinder. Um, so there's also like, a, you know, the Eurasianism as a slogan, uh, it originated in Europe uh, by a group of Russian or Soviet exiles. Um, so there were two guys actually linguists, um, Prince Nikolai Trubetskoy and Roman Jacobson. Uh, so these guys, uh, were pen pals. They were friends. They were both linguists and, uh, Trubetskoy gets exiled at the, uh, in 1917 during the first world war. He tries to get away and go to Turkey at the time. Um, but Trubetskoy, his project as a linguist was searching for like universal phonological laws. And he ended up, uh, being a proponent of Eurasianism, but also added certain things to Eurasianism, like the concept of there being sort of 
unconscious linguist, linguistic borders um, known as isoglosses that 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 kind of divided East and West. Um, so the ideas of like the ideas of like a common sort of uh, language or um, forming a geographical barrier uh, to the East and West was added to Eurasianism via uh, the work of Jacobson <clears throat> and Trubitskoy. Um, and so you have the, the Halford McKinder stuff with the Heartland and the Rimland. You have the uh, Soviet exiles coming up with ideas for Eurasianism uh, while they're exiled from uh, the Soviet Union and after the Bolshevik Revolution. Um, and then you also have um, Trubitskoy taking up like uh, political pamphleting where he writes all these ideas. Um, and I and I think it's important to kind of note the political climate at this point. Um, you know, like three major empires that just collapsed, right? So like you had the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Ottoman Empire, and the German Empire that all collapsed. Plus, uh, Russia that had collapsed uh, rather quickly into the Soviet, it, 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 the Bolshevik Revolution happened rather quickly, and all of this combined to create a mood where deeply embedded truths were suddenly open to question. Um, so with all this in mind, Trubitskoy, um, the linguist, he ends up writing a pamphlet, um, and, and in this pamphlet, he takes some ideas from other obscure pamphleteers, um, and he, he calls it Europe and Mankind. And this pamphlet is a blistering attack on Europe's claim to universalism and progress. Uh, he founds the Eurasianist movement. So basically, like, this idea of criticizing the West since, like, the shine of European society after the First World War had kind of worn off, right? This idea of criticizing uh, Europe's claim to, like, enlightenment values and uh, being the pinnacle of progress were all questioned and he sort of excoriated this notion that um that the west has any claim to universality of of truth of of of, of other things like uh like the universality of human rights or the universality of enlightenment values um so all this sort of comprises uh, these are all constituent ideas into eurasianism which is that uh russia occupies a unique geographical dominion that is bordered by unconscious barriers of language, um, and that Russia itself um, should be uh, rejecting of trying to Europeanize itself. Uh, it looks to like, I think, Peter the Great as a, as a Tsar who attempted to integrate Russia with Europe uh, and, and, and how the Russian intelligentsia was wrong to do that, and that Russia should be its own thing over its own dominion. Um, uh, like all this stuff is is part and parcel with Eurasianism, including like uh, critiques of modernity, uh, critiques of the West, and a sort of uh, notion that that a, that that Russia should pull back and be its own empire, uh, like an empire of empires, if you will. Mm. Yeah, very interesting. So Eurasianism, um, just try to kind of nail down this concept yeah. or some questions I have about it. You know, when you hear Eurasianism, you might sometimes think a union between Europe and Asia. That's not what is meant here. Um, what role does, like, China and Mongolia and Korea play in this Eurasian philosophy? Is that just the East, and then there's the West, and then there's Eurasia? Is that how he, he conceives it? I mean, it, it depends on how you look at it, because, like, there's plans for uh, uh, Russian domination of these areas within foundations of geopolitics. I mean, mm. that book as a sort of manifesto and political program for Eurasianism 
It is also one uh, that expressly states it's for like the world rule of Russians. So, um, so insofar as there are plans or roles to be played with any of this, I, I, I don't think we should have rose-colored glasses looking at any sort of like friendly unionization of Asian countries. It's, uh, you know, to Dugan, uh, even though he may profess a sort of uh, multinational pluralism that he's in favor of, uh, he's written, uh, you know, concretely that there are plans for domination and for Finlandization and, and, and all these different uh, aspects of, of imperialist dominion of a Eurasianist sort of union, uh, which is basically, it's basically Russian imperialism is what it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very or a plan for that, rather. Yeah. A, a plan for it, yeah. Um, yeah, and it's, I think it's, it's worth noting just to help people understand that, you know, this is some, Dugan is, is anti-modernity, right? Right. Um, he's very anti-liberal. And he's like, as you said, this anti-universalism is this opposition to the pretense that the Western world, America, Europe, you know, North America and Europe have about their values. Um, so he's like, no, those are yours. You know, that's fine if, if you want stuff like gay marriage and all these things over there. But stop pretending they're universal. Stop pretending that Russians should adopt your way of life and your visions. We are a unique and different civilization. Um, and so, you know, you can have what you believe is right over there and we'll have what we believe is right over here, but don't try to impose anything on us. Is that more or less, uh, correct? Yeah. Like, uh, what Dugan opposes, I think most sternly is the universalism that, uh, Western uh, society uh, seeks to hold on, like, uh, things like human dignity. Like he, he takes real issue with like universal human rights. The, the universal yeah. part of that is what he considers to be totalitarian, uh, is what he considers to be fascist in, in his own way of reversing that term. Um, and, you know, th- this this train of thought, uh, the rejection of the universalism, uh, it, I think it goes back to like a philosopher like Gian Battista Vico with like the particularism that there are multiple human ways to go about life in an affirming way, which are, if incommensurate, still equally valid. Um, and so that in itself is not like a harmful idea. And I think there's a lot of beauty that can be, uh, taken from something like that. Um, but when you take these ideas and you turn them against, uh, the notion of a, of, of human rights being something that is, uh, that should be afforded to all human beings, um, that's where you lose me. And, and I start to see the, a more sort of nefarious, uh, game plan going on there. Absolutely. Yeah. He will often talk in certain ways like you know i'm not against like gay rights or gay marriage i'm just against this idea that it should be universally applied to all you know so he'll kind of say like i'm not racist you know i just think blah 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 and so he kind of like you know as opposed to like these hardcore fascists who can't wait to tell you how racist they are and you know how much they hate gay people etc he is kind of playing this little tap dance game um where he's like i'm not against these things but we should be able to decide for ourselves stop pretending that, you know, all societies should immediately embrace what you, Europe and America, embrace. You know, that we're fundamentally different. We don't need to necessarily embrace that. We can if we want, but that's our choice. And so he kind of does this thing where he's like, I'm not anti-gay and I'm not anti, I'm not, you know, racist, but, you know, I don't believe that these are universal rights that apply to us all the time. So what he's basically saying is we reserve the right to be racist and to be anti-gay. We just haven't decided if we want to be yet, Right. Is that kind of right? I mean, I know it's a simplified version, right, right. but that's kind of what I get right. from his interviews. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a very complicated and dressed up way of saying blood and soil in a way. Like, it's like a, mm. uh, 
And, and what I mean by that is like, what better way to sort of dismiss the universalism of uh, human rights than by beautifying the particular, you know, mm. saying that like, we have our land, we have our truth, we have, you know, our language, we have our traditions. And, and so this sort of, uh, I, I, I suppose, um, beautification of the particular quickly can dissolve into a sort of like uh reification of strong borders of ethnic central sort of uh philosophical programs you know um so yeah. it's like it's it's about uh, to use a term here it's like a it's a value of rootedness um mm. uh, of tied to the soil to the land to the culture to the tradition um which on its face can seem very um it can seem innocuous, but but like I yeah. said, it, it, within the belief system, if you follow Dugan far enough and do enough of his writings, uh, his past and things that he's ideas that he traffics in, uh, you understand that this is, uh, like I said, a, a dressed up way of saying blood and soil. Yeah, well, I think that leads next into this next this next concept, which is also incredibly important, um, which is traditionalism. So, can you talk about what that is and and how Dugan understands that term? Yeah, um, and I think it's it's important to, um, because when I first came into this concept, I was not familiar with, like, capital T traditionalism. It's not like just being, it, like, in the traditional term of traditionalism, it's a whole different concept. Um, and so traditionalism is, like, and, and, and this is all stuff that, like, has been said many times by Benjamin Teitelbaum. So, Ben, if you're listening, hello, mm. you know. Um, <laughs> but, like, so, first and foremost, it traditionalism is like a spiritual and a religious school um and it's also known as like the philosoph philosophy perennis um which is you know basically like long ago there was one central religion that had um a, a central core truth to it but over time uh this truth and this tradition has been splintered and broken and lost and and, and bastardized and so uh, traditionalists, um, they look at all religions, uh, maybe not equal in degree, but all religions as kind of a pathway to that central truth. Um, there's certain things about traditionalism, like uh, like some of the belief in cyclical time, a disbelief in progress. Um, you know, some of the main traditionalists were like Julius Evola and Rene Guénon. Um, and so they, traditionalism in taking from these writers, it's a very sort of pessimistic and fatalistic perspective, meaning that like the disbelief in progress is the opposite. They they not only don't believe in progress, they believe that like basically like there was uh, the Garden of Eden and everything else has been downhill since then. Like society mm -hmm. has just gotten worse and worse and worse. Um, and so within this concept, since they don't believe that you can actively make society better, uh, it's hard to sort of reckon with how something like traditionalism could become uh, politically active or, you know, be something that's discussed in the mainstream uh, at this point. Um, so there's a lot with traditionalism. Alexander Dugan is said to be a traditionalist. He certainly carries influence from traditionalism. Um, but there is also like this sort of eschatological, uh, you know, sort of aspect to traditionalism in that their disbelief in progress leads them to believe that there will be like one cataclysmic moment of destruction when we are returned to like a golden age of truth insight social order and beauty um and you know this has to do with like uh, the sort of 
Kali Yuga, cyclical time, which is taken out of the Hindu tradition. Um, and, you know, as far as like traditionalists believing in certain religions to be a pathway to this timeless, eternal truth that's lost to us, right? Um, they, they tend to prefer uh, religions like Hinduism, Sufi Islam, and, and maybe in third place uh, is like Catholicism, uh, mostly because those, uh, those religions, their doctrine is the oldest and is said to be the most developed. Uh, with Sufi Islam, uh, they, they really particularly like the fact that there's like an esoteric practice in addition to an exoteric practice with Sufi Islam. Um, and so all this being said, like traditionalists are, uh, it's, it, traditionalism is kind of a, a new topic. Like it's not something that's been discussed out uh, very much. Uh, it's only recently, like I learned about this stuff when I read Benjamin Teitelbaum's book. Um, but I think we'll get into more of those thinkers and why they're important and how they influence Dugan, uh, in just a little bit. Yeah. I wonder, well, first, um, let me say the, uh, the cyclical time really stuck out to me, and, and the, the use of, of the Kali Yuga, this Hindu term, um, and then this, this idea that, that that progress, especially under the liberal worldview, right? Like, we, the, the moral arc of history is long, but bends towards justice. We have feminist movements, and we have the gay rights movements, and we have the, you know, black liberation movements, all these other movements, etc., that a lot of people in the West, even, you know, radicals and, and communists and stuff, will think of that in terms of this march towards getting things progressively better, progressively more equal, etc. Now, I think there's a, a communist critique of, of that very liberal line of reasoning and the way that liberalism advances and whether or not it's even capable of the sort of progress it proclaims to be capable of. Um, but the the fascist or the traditionalist uh, critique is just like, that's just a mirage. Like, this is not... A, a long-standing march towards, you know, ultimate progress, these things like gay rights and feminism and stuff, they're just ephemera that bubble up in, in a specifically dark period of cyclical time, the Kali Yuga, and right. they will be washed away, will be returned uh, back to a more natural state. Um, and and also included with all of that is this reification of natural hierarchies. And I've even heard Dugan talk about this as like, you know, the, the the inner capacity of people, like he talks about, like, if you have a contemplative soul, then you belong in the clergy or as a philosopher. If you have a warrior soul, then you belong in the military, right? So he's like really bio-essentializing hierarchies. And, and right, when you're start, right when you start talking about biological hierarchies and the need to impose those on human society, you're, you're talking about reaction, you're talking about fascism, you're talking about brutal hierarchies of domination. Um, and he's very much, you know, thumbs up for, for all of that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, you know, in terms of like the the narrative of progress, you know, I, I think it's important to distinguish traditionalism uh, from fascism in such a way that like, you know, we think of fascism as like the most extreme sort of political ideology, that if you're the worst of the worst, then you are a fascist. Um, but part of understanding <laughs> traditionalism is understanding uh, that, you know, traditionalism is a little more depraved than than the concept of fascism. <laughs> and when you look at fascism uh, it, with liberalism and communism, you know, fascism is still like, you know, it's it's still it, it may be a bourgeois driven sort of social hierarchy, but it is still uh, working towards a, a a world that fascist deem is better. Right. Like so. Yes. Yeah. So like traditionalism doesn't even share any of that sentiment. 
right? Traditionalism mm-hmm. says no, it's anti-modernity, meaning that like yeah. the West and liberal society is decadent and must be destroyed so that way we return to pre-modernity, back to the roots of tradition. Um, and with that comes this discussion of uh, the gold, silver, bronze, and dark ages as it relates correspondingly to the ideal caste society that traditionalists uh, taken from Julius Sevilla, meaning that like there would be a spiritual elite on the top and there would be followed by a warrior caste. Uh, so like gold age is like the spiritual elite with Brahmins and the silver age is the warrior caste. Bronze age is the mercantile class and then dark age is the, the slave class. So like mm. all this traditionalism, it wants to return to a time of highly stratified society um, with the spiritual lead at the top, with slavery at the bottom. And as it relates to like gay rights and feminism, you know, um, those are things that are seen to be like part of decadent Western society. And part of the, you know, like you can't have a critique of fascism without understanding that it's highly patriarchal, right? Mm -hmm. And part of that is the subjugation of women. Uh, of of knowing your place, of of always remaining there and being a tool of the patriarchy of society. Um, so all of this wraps together in a way that is uh, the antithesis of of progress, the antithesis the antithesis of like emancipation campaigns. This is uh, this is really dark stuff, and this is you know stuff that Dugan uh, has obviously taken a lot of influence from these ideas, these writers, and part of the Eurasianist project for him. Uh, is forwarding uh, the destruction of modernity, the destruction Mm. of liberal society, you know, all the way down to philosophically deconstructing the Cartesian subject. Like, Mm. you know, like, so it's not only on a philosophically meta level, but it's also like the literal destruction of Western society. And, And all this ties back into the the notion of like a uh, multicultural pluralism, right? It's not a it's not a true multicultural pluralism because even the universalists don't have the right to choose the things for themselves, right? It's like this is, uh, and I'll get into later on why people have described the project of Dugan as a sort of ecumenical jihad, meaning if mm-hmm. you're anti-fascist, anti-liberal, anti-communist, come together and destroy modernity with us. You know, that's right. basically like how he's trying to to bring people into the fold that way. So there's room for traditionalists, there's room for Eurasianists, there's room for neo-Nazis, there's room for anti-liberals, there's room for... So it's like an ecumenical jihad in that in that respect. But yeah, I, I know that's a lot, but yeah. Yeah, that's so interesting. Yeah, like we, what he would say is like what you call progress, we call the darkest ages possible, right. which is like a complete reversal of everything <laughs> that most moderns believe. But I think that idea that you, that you delineated between fascism and traditionalism is really important because Dugan himself says... The fight between liberalism, communism, and fascism was the fight for who was going to lead into modernity or who was going to take control of modernity. All of them were modern, um, which he rejects, right? But he's like, fascist was, fascism was the least modern. It lost out first. Communism was the second least modern. And liberalism was the most modern. And we know that's true because liberalism ultimately won out. And so they, that represents modernity. Therefore, that's what I want to critique. But yeah, even for him... Traditional fascism of Italy and, and Germany was moder- modern as well and believed in its own version of progress, which he fully rejects. And he talks about himself as both pre- and postmodern. Like, he has pre-modern ambitions, but he uses, he says this explicitly, I use postmodern critiques and methodology 
to attack modernity from both sides, um, which I thought was kind of interesting because he makes great use of a lot of quote-unquote postmodern thinkers in his analysis and his methodology, even though he disagrees with them about many other things. Right, right. And, you know, he... um he says in a video, like, we have our own special Russian truth, meaning that, like, if, if truth is all relative in the postmodernist sense, then we should be entitled to our own truth, which determines our own yeah. reality. You know, um, yeah, it's, it's wild stuff, man. Uh, but it's it's scarier the more that you get into it, especially when you start looking up, uh, like, articles he wrote. Because um, you talked about fourth political theory and how that's, like, this fourth uh, follow-up to liberalism, communism, fascism. Uh, you know, it, it's... Fourth political theory really just kind of recreates fascism, and 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 it's kind of scary when you read like uh, an article he wrote called "Fascism: A Borderless and Red," where he talks about like a new fascism being uh, born into Russia that is as borderless as our lands and as red as our blood. Uh, mm. So, but it's important, man. To I think there's a space here within the sort of critique of modernity. Again, this these this is unoriginal. This is not. An idea that Dugan has come up with on its own. You know, the critiques of modernity have come as far back as like 1789 with Joseph de Maestra uh, reacting to the French Revolution. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, it, it, some of the more uh, recent interpretations of Nietzsche, particularly from Domenico Lacerdo, uh, the uh, the Italian Marxist scholar, um, you know, he basically says that the project of Nietzsche was to create uh, for those who are eligible, was to create a pan-European master caste whose project it is to forward culture, politics, and aesthetics, right? So, like, uh, in, in, in Nietzsche's project was also to undo the French Revolution and to undo the moral workings of Christianity, right? So, like, this Nietzschean scorn against modernity, Nietzsche was really, like, the first, um, one of the most prominent or credited with, like, kind of being the first... Uh, critique of modernity in a way. Um, but Heidegger had these same sort of traditional beliefs. Uh, so uh, you can see that Dugan has taken the projects of Nietzsche in his anti-modernity commitments and the project of Heidegger in, in his traditionalism or uh, against modernity uh, stuff. You can go read a Der Spiegel article about this stuff. It's really cool, actually. Um, but yeah, he's taken these ideas and he's relocated into Moscow for the 21st century, basically. Mm. Um, and that's how Ronald Beener would describe the ambitions of, of Dugan as well, in that he's just basically taken the Heideggerian and Nietzschean anti-modernity projects and uh, has relocated into Moscow and has implemented a geopolitical program to accomplish these ends. Mm. Yeah, and, and all of that, plus the, the pre- and post-modern stuff I was talking about before, it does give me this sense of, of cherry picking. You know, it's, it's not so much like I'm generating these great ideas or I'm like systematically and without contradiction adopting certain philosophers. It's like, I'll take this from Heidegger, I'll take this from Nietzsche, I'll take this from here, this from Evola, etc. Um, and sort of mix them together for my own kind of the, the sense I get pre-existing commitment to something mm -hmm. like, you know, Russia, some version of Russian nationalism and traditionalism. And so as opposed, there's lots of contradictions, is what I want to say, that emerge when you cherry pick. And those contradictions are alive and well in his work. Really quick before we move on, though. Yeah, yeah. I know, I know Orthodox, you mentioned Catholicism and Hinduism, mm -hmm. but Orthodox Christianity is obviously huge for Dugan, for Russia, for that entire area. Um so I, didn't, I don't know if you have a deep thoughts on this, but do you want to touch on the role that the Orthodox Church plays in his conception of traditionalism? 
Yes, I do. And thank you for asking <laughs> that because, uh, so here's the deal with like the Orthodox Church. First of all, like uh, some of the Eurasianist theories uh, that started out, like some of the original ideas was that there was also a dividing line between Catholic in the West and Orthodox in the East. Um, but it, this also goes back to uh, Julius Evola as well, because Julius Evola, uh, he was a, a critique. He was a critic of the Italian fascist movement when it started. He called it a laughable revolution. And mm. Evola had a sort of non-biological form of racism that he was attempting to infuse into the Italian fascist party. And this was a sort of uh, what's been described as a spiritual racism in mm. that... Um, you know, Mussolini was looking for a form of racism that could, like, distinguish uh, Italian fascism from German fascism. Uh, and so part of why Mussolini took a liking to the writings of Evola, specifically Evola's writings called Synthesis of the Doctrine of Race, was because he, you know, uh, in that book, uh, Evola says stuff like, uh, you know, a man could be Aryan in appearance, but Jewish of the soul. So it was like, right, right. So it's this twisted stuff that ultimately, if Mussolini used it, his his appeal, the reason why this appealed to him was because it would allow Mussolini to decide who was Aryan and who was not Aryan. Um, mm. So, but this infusion of spirituality um, was what Julius Evola sought to accomplish with the Italian fascist movement. And after he wasn't able to do that, he actually went and tried to cozy up to the German fascists to try to do the same thing. And Heinrich Himmler himself like dismissed him and wrote a letter wow. to his people that was like, yo, we need to watch this guy. We should send him back to Italy. We should monitor what he's doing. Uh, he's an aristocratic reactionary is what he is. Um, but, you know, Evola, in this attempt to like infuse spirituality into fascism, called it, uh, that said that he wanted a consistent fascist fascism. And that's something that Dugan has also said, that uh, in that uh, fascism border, uh, borderless in red, he says something to the extent of like, you know, we're looking for an actual fascist fascism. He's lifting that from Julius Evola. So hmm. the the spiritual aspects of Dugan um, have, and the nationalism of Russia now contains this uh, element of orthodoxy, right? Hmm. And so in my whole analysis of understanding this sort of uh, what I believe to be a sort of Russian fascism emerging, uh, it's, it's, uh, you can see the sort of dots connected from Evola's need to spiritualize fascism to Dugan taking the influence of Evola. And that is where the Russian orthodoxy stuff comes in now. Yeah, that's very interesting. I, I just want to linger on this point for a little bit because yeah. I'm somebody who is very interested in, in spirituality and the merging of egalitarian left radical politics with uh, spiritual investigations. I think, you know, inner work and outer work are, are important, transformation on both sides of that particular coin. But I naively, when I first got into this, I was quickly disabused, but I think in general a lot of people will assume that spiritual communities tend towards the left. If not Communism, certainly liberalism, this new age, granola bar, progressivism, you know, that people sort of have in their mind when they think of spirituality is certainly there. But that can obscure the fact that there is a longstanding hard right sort of co-option of various versions of spirituality, including esotericism, including the occult, including outright mysticism. 
And you can even see some of their interests in things like Buddhism and Hinduism coming out even in this discussion, um, which is sort of jarring at first. As somebody who wants these things to be so obviously left, um, the fact that there's such a breeding ground for the right in these places should make us pause and reconsider. And one article I read that was really helpful, I forget the full title, but if you Google sure. the, the Cosmic Right, there's this article. I read it about a year ago, but it really lays out a right-wing understanding of spirituality, and a lot of it has to do with the esoteric and the idea that there is hidden knowledge, but the hidden knowledge should only be revealed to very certain people in very specific hierarchies. You know, so I'm at the top, you know, like you just talked about Dugan placing the clergy as the golden age, right? So like, yes, these people run society because they are unique in their ability to have access to this esoteric knowledge. Everybody else is cattle to be dealt with, right? I mean, you know, that's kind of oversimplified, but you, you get my point. Yeah. And the hierarchies that arise out of spiritual accomplishment uh, should be reified and institutionalized. And so it is an anti-egalitarian spirituality that says it's actually only for a very select few at the top of a hierarchy. It's not for everybody. Whereas I come to the complete opposite conclusion, like, no, these mystical truths, these spiritual practices can be engaged by anybody, anywhere in the world, etc., right? In com complete uh, juxtaposition to this idea. But um, and I, I was kind of thinking about this because on your last episode you had on a, a Sufi and he was talking about his spirituality and his egalitarian politics, and I deeply resonated with that, but also this other side of things, which we, we have to take account of. Um, so, yeah, if you're out there and you're interested, Google the cosmic right and start learning. It's a, it's a long and deep and torturous rabbit hole, but it's, uh, it's fascinating for sure. Yeah, man. I, I, yeah, like the, the whole cosmic right thing and, and uh, spiritual understandings being only for a select few, uh, it reminds me of kind of the tonality that like Nietzsche and also uh, Julius Evola write in, in that when they write, part of the reason why they're writing, uh, why Nietzsche's writing anyway, can be seductive. Uh, and, and and thrilling and enthralling and engage you is not just as he's a Nietzsche was a great writer, but also because it's in his writing for a select few who are eligible for this project. It, it's very natural for the reader to think, oh, well, I'm one of those individuals, exactly. you know, and, and so you start to believe that you are part of this select few that is here to forward politics and aesthetics and culture. And and and, and yeah, I should eat steak and I'm I'm reading Nietzsche. So, I'm, I, of course, I'm an overman, you know, um, <laughs> and, and so. So all this being said, dude, is that like, you know, I, I don't know, man, like I, I always thought like we should read Nietzsche from the perspective of a loser. Like what happens when you read <laughs> Nietzsche from the perspective of someone who is not eligible for that product or for that project, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, you're exactly right. It's the same sort of thing. Like, Hey, this is, this is only for a select few. It just so happens to be that those select few are not women. You know, they're just like yeah. men that are selected, that are few that are held up, uh, that are uh, at the top of a hierarchy. I mean, it's all. Uh, the antithesis of any sort of uh, political and philosophical commitments you and I have, I think. so. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I was just going to say, uh, it's a brilliant move if you're a writer to give the reader a sense that I'm letting you in on something. And actually, the fact that you're even reading this means that you're already special. I mean, that's just that's a, yeah. a brilliant move if you want to sell books <laughs> and have an audience. But yeah, you know, right, mixing, right. like it's, it's it's clear to me that Nietzsche had spiritual experiences he talks about going on walks and falling to his knees in hysterical fits of like mystical ecstasy and stuff 
But yeah, when combined with concepts like the Ubermensch and just Nietzsche's disdain for the masses, for the herd, as you would, you know, those things are right, right for the picking of this sort of right wing spiritualism. And on, on Red Menace, we recently did an episode on the philosophy of Schopenhauer and Nietzsche and kind of talked about some of these lines. And that's why we're going to Evola next, because there's a line from Nietzsche and Schopenhauer to Evola um, that we're going to continue to investigate. So if you're interested, definitely go check that out. But I think we've touched on on some of this, but maybe there's a few that we haven't mentioned, which is Dugan's major influences um, and sort of what he takes from them. I, we, we've talked right, about Evola right. at length. Is there any more that we haven't talked about that you want to um, highlight? I I think I want to talk about Heidegger a bit because um, we've talked enough about Nietzsche, but I think we can get to that within the context of the next question, actually. Okay. So you just want me to move on to the next question? Yeah, let's go to the next question there, yeah. All right, so what are Dugan's major works, and what are some of the core themes expressed therein, in addition to what we've already discussed? All right, so I want to talk about two of his works, one being Foundations of Geopolitics and the other being Fourth Political Theory, and I'll talk about Heidegger underneath Fourth Political Theory. Okay. Um, but it's important for Foundations of Geopolitics to... Um, you guys can look this book up, right? You can go find this book online, you can download it, and you can search for these words, right? Um, Dugan literally says that Russia should be ruling from Dublin to uh, Vladivostok. So, like, Jesus. Vladivostok is, like, uh, over near the North Korean border. Dublin is in Ireland. Uh, he says, like, the absolute imperative of Russian geopolitics on the Black Sea coast is the total and unlimited control of Moscow, uh, throughout its entire link from the Ukrainian to Abstaz territories. So, like, Jesus. he's basically talking about the northern coast of the Black Sea should be exclusively Eurasian and centrally subordinate to Moscow. Um, so, he also talks about, like, the, the battle for the world rule of Russians is not over. And he brings up that Halford McKinder phrase of, like, he who controls Eastern Europe dominates the heartland. He who dominates the heartland dominates the world island. He who dominates the world island dominates the world. Like, basically, the annexation of Ukraine, uh, calling for the Finlandization of all of Europe. Finlandization means, like, you take a smaller subordinate country and you, or you take a smaller country and you, you give it its sort of nominal independence, um, but you also, that, that country is not going to um, misalign from you politically, um, and so you allow it to have this nominal independence, but it's really like a subservient state that forwards your own agenda of the larger state. Um, mm. And and Dugan is calling for the Finlandization of all of Europe. Um, he calls, yeah, he calls for the annexation of Ukraine, and and like part of the reason why this is so alarming is again is like there's if if Russian foreign policy wasn't strictly about controlling the northern coast of the Black Sea for the last ten years. You know, maybe I wouldn't be as, uh, maybe I wouldn't be here talking to you, but unfortunately that's what we've seen it turn out to be. Um, and so there's, there's also like, you know, the stuff about like, uh, more verbiage taken from, uh, Halford McKinder of like Atlanticist powers versus, uh, land power and sea power, stuff we've talked about there. Um, but Foundations of Geopolitics is his first major work. Um, it was written in 1997, so it, it's pretty harrowing to to understand that this geopolitical program has been something that the Kremlin has been a, a aware of and helped produce as far back as 1997. Mm. Um, and then there's fourth political theory, which we've talked a little bit about, um, but I 
So the fourth political theory, he doesn't call it a name, right? So he says like there's liberalism, communism, and fascism. Those make up the first three, uh, the first three uh, political theories, uh, with liberalism having like individualism as its subject, communism having class as its subject, and with fascism having uh, race or a nation as its subject. And then fourth political theory, he doesn't name it, right? Because he wants to leave it sort of intentionally vague. But he says the subject of fourth political theory is Dasein. So mm. I, I don't know if all of our listeners are familiar with Dasein, uh, but briefly, in order to explain this Dasein thing, I have to explain a little bit about Heidegger. Um, so Heidegger thinks that it's, Dasein is a Heideggerian word. It's a word he introduces, and the word means being there. Uh, and, and what he means by that is that human beings tend to get lost in their everydayness, and in that everydayness, uh, we uh, lose touch with our authentic selves, and Dasein is a way of rescuing our authentic selves from our everydayness. And the way that you do that is you live toward death, because in living towards death and, and, and encountering your own mortality, you can find authentic versions of yourself, uh, authentic truths, uh, and, and, and therefore you can achieve Dasein by uh, being your most authentic self. Now, Heidegger was a phenomenologist, meaning that this was like, phenomenology is like a, like a first philosophy. It's like uh, the experiential or the ontology, the being, like what it is to be is a central question of Heidegger's project. And Dugan feels that in the Heideggerian sense, the West has lost its question of being, like it has forgotten the question of being. And it is only through um, Dasein, meaning like a, a return to an authentic self and reestablishing the question of being, can uh, fourth political theory and, and uh, take shape the Dasein of the people, uh, reconnecting uh, them with their authentic truths, uh, bring in traditional, uh, traditionalism a little bit here, right? Um, he thinks that we need to return to pre-modernity through a Heideggerian sort of notion of rediscovering the question of being. Um, so fourth political theory, it, it reads like, it's, it's very inconsistent. All the chapters are meant to be taken on their own, and I don't think Dugan gives a shit about consistency from chapter to chapter, so there's lots of uh, contradictions in there, and that's a really rough job of explaining this concept of, like, uh, a Dasein of the people um, and, and what fourth political theory ultimately is calling for. Um, it reads, the, the book Fourth Political Theory kind of reads as, like, a, a work of Heideggerian mysticism. There's a bit of, like, a... Uh, almost like Russian messianic sort of element to it. Um, but yeah, he goes into this whole, like, I'm anti-modern, I'm anti-liberal, anti-communist, anti-fascist. And within that, he kind of sculpts out through the need for the West to get back in touch with its authentic being. He he, he kind of calls for this sort of ecumenical jihad against liberalism and against Western society. Um, and within this context, there's there's really there's no place for feminism. There's a fascist affirmation of patriarchy, um, and he's drawing a lot of thinkers to do this. Like he's he's actually appropriating some of the language of Deleuze and Guattari, yeah. uh, calling for like a multiplicity of pluralities. Um, this is all like an affirmation of strong borders, stratified caste society, rejection of universal human rights and values, and uh, 
And all of this is kind of in service of this Nietzschean and Heideggerian commitment towards the destruction of modernity or the return to pre-modernity. Um, uh, and yeah, so that's that's basically like what fourth political theory is. I don't know if you have any questions around that. Yeah, uh, so definitely a few things. Um, so, so there's so much to unpack here. Yeah, so just for people that don't know, you know, phenomenology, you kind of alluded to it, but, you know, so it's sort of like using the immediate subjectivity of existing as your starting point for philosophical investigation. Now, a lot of philosophers are not doing that, right? They start ontologically. They try to understand the outside world and then make sense of the inner in relation to that. Um, so it just that's a whole different starting point for philosophy. And so that's interesting because that's certainly a huge thing that, that he sees himself as carrying forward. Um, and, but the, this Dyson, you know, like, yeah, the liberal centers individual, the communist centers class, the fascist centers race or nation. Uh, this Dyson is this for, is the, is the, is the focal point of this fourth political theory, but it exists and correct me if I'm wrong here, not in individuals in the way that Heidegger meant, but in communities of people or, you know, civilizations of people with a common starting point. So there's like, not a Dyson in the individual, but the Russian Dyson, right? Or maybe the Chinese Dyson, the American right. Dyson. That's how he's using the term, right? Yeah, he's explicitly rejecting the a universal Dasein that applies to all people at all times and places. Mm. He's uh, making it more of like a cultural or national Dasein. Yeah. Right. Interesting. Um, and then so... So, like, you know, there, there are things that we agree with, right? We've talked about, like, this idea of a pluralistic multiplicity. And I do think that there's a totalitarian nature to liberal universalism. This idea that we as good Western liberals are right about our core economic, political, and social beliefs, and we are helping the world by making these ideas spread around the world. And, you know, U.S. imperialism is like we're doing it by force. Um, and so there is this totalitarian nature. Liberals think that what's good for them is good for everybody. And so these two things, these starting points of like reject this liberal pretense to universality and this idea that liberals have, they have a right to impose their ideas on the whole world. And this idea of let a, a million flowers bloom. Let every civilization, every culture, every community blossom in its own way um, without outside interference. And there's something deeply beautiful and human in that. And I, I believe like I don't want a world where liberal capitalism is the only way of life. And we see liberals devastate specifically indigenous communities at home and abroad because their entire way of life cannot be shoehorned into the liberal capitalist way of organizing a society. So there is that totalitarian nature, but the direction he takes it from those two starting points that I think a lot of people could agree with, anti-liberals on the left could possibly agree with, he takes it in a hardcore reactionary opposite direction from anything that we would ever we would ever want to promote. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that's sort of the lure. Well, we'll get into a little bit later about the Red-Brown alliances or the threat therein. Sort of a lure, because if you can advance some basic ideas, some starting points that a leftist would be like, you know what, yeah, I agree with that. You can and obscure some of the more reactionary parts. You can bring them into your gravitational orbit and then, you know, slow dose them with that, with that more right-wing reaction stuff. Um, and I think that that is a potency and a real danger in this stuff. But, uh, yeah, do you have any thoughts on anything I laid out there? Yeah, I think you're totally right. There's a lot of coded language depending on who Dugan is talking to, what mm. crowd he's addressing, right? Um, and and I want to say that, like, 
you know, if you study the stuff for long enough and you start disagreeing with Dugan, it's not that you automatically agree with like universalism of liberal values, but there is part of this, like, I mean, I'm a communist through and through, and part of me feels like I've uh, adopted viewpoints of like muscular liberals throughout this process mm. because you're, <laughs> you know, because you're, you're reading this stuff and you're like, wait a second, human rights are good. Universal human rights and dignity is good. And, and, you know, rights, democracy. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, you're also like disagreeing with Dugan and you're kind of, you know, these ideas, like I said, they're not original, right? So, like, I think that Dugan yeah. took the sort of criticism of universalism maybe from, like, John Mearsheimer, you know? Because <laughs> John Mearsheimer is, like, uh, you know, he's kind of getting some slack right now because he's uh, come out and said that, yeah, that, that the West is responsible uh, primarily for this uh, this tragedy going on in Ukraine. Um, but he wrote, uh, you know, the myth of liberal hegemony. Uh, he, he talked about how uh, liberalism... Uh, started to form within the United States taking on the project of liberal hegemony globally after the end of the Second World War. I mean, he talks about how there are totalitarian aspects to liberal universalism. Um, so, yeah, I, I totally get it, man. And it's wild to think that, like, a lot of these ideas, like, who knew phenomenology and linguistics to be so problematic, dude? <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> But uh, yeah, the, the John Mearsheimer point is very interesting. Obviously, he's not a communist. He's giving a realist, right. you know, IR perspective. But I found it very helpful, especially at the beginning of the crisis, specifically because that entire viewpoint is obliterated from mainstream corporate liberal reporting on the issue here in the West. I, I actually just listened to a, an Ezra Klein episode where he's presenting as like, okay, I'm a liberal, right? We all know Ezra Klein's a liberal. I'm going to take on this John Mearsheimer argument. And I'm going to have on a realist in international relations on the show to do this. But then immediately that person he brings on also disagrees with John Mearsheimer. And so it just it just goes into like a defense of liberalism without actually giving proper due to Mearsheimer's criticism. Because, you know, an Ezra Klein type figure or any sort of liberal pundit is going to want to obscure, hide, or just be ignorant of the role that U.S. escalation and brinkmanship has played in this. Even if you ultimately say... That's just one variable. It's still Putin's fault for invading. Okay, okay, okay. But you just at least have to acknowledge that NATO and U.S. have played a brinkmanship, have pushed things in this direction, and have brought this, brought this crisis to a boiling point, and there's enough culpability to go around. And, you know, for very obvious reasons, liberals want to, yeah. most, especially well-off liberals at the in the ruling class, as a member of the elite, wants to obscure that. And they really want to see, like, we are the good guys. Maybe we weren't the good guys in Iraq. Maybe we weren't even the good guys in Afghanistan, but we're definitely the good guys here. And you can see how an American patriot or somebody that sees themselves as fundamentally invested in the American project would want to take that line. And so it's just interesting to see liberals yeah. squirm around that. <laughs> and it's really strange, too, considering, like, if you take the perspective that NATO is uh, uh, and the expansion of NATO was responsible for this crisis, well, surprise, you're actually, like, agreeing with George Kennan and Zbigniew Brzezinski. <laughs> You know, <laughs> yeah. so they forwarded those ideas as well. Yeah, it's funny. Um, okay, so, yeah, let's go ahead, uh, move in the next one, which is, and again, we, we've touched on this, but I'm interested yeah. to hear how you elaborate. How is Dugan relevant to contemporary geopolitics? And what are maybe his relationships to right-wing movements uh, globally, yeah. outside of Russia? Yeah, so um, this goes back to Benjamin Teitelbaum's book, uh, War for Eternity, because he actually discovered that uh, Alexander Dugin had met with Steve Bannon. And yeah. so that was a really wild thing, man. Um, Alexander Dugin uh, has a sort of network, 
Like after 97, after he started teaching for the uh, Academy of the General Staff, he was somehow able, I mean, I don't know if it was funded or what, it's an interesting question to pose, but he was able to travel to Europe and connect with members of the far right. You know, he was able to connect with people like Alain de Benoit. Uh, he was able to, uh, you know, in the last like five, seven years, meet with Steve Bannon. He has connections to uh, a Brazilian far right conspiracy theorist and philosopher and uh, political pundit named Olavo del Carvalho. Um, he actually, Olavo just died in January of 2022 this year. So, um, but yeah, like, uh, you know, it, how is he contemporary or how is he relevant to contemporary geopolitics? I, it, there's obviously the the aspect of like how foundations of geopolitics seems like a Russian geopolitical program being implemented now. Um, but there's also the, you know, if you think about things like uh, like Steve Bannon and his connections to Cambridge Analytica, if you think of Olavo having the ear of Jair Bolsonaro, uh, if you think of the totality of the sort of way that Dugan ties in with the French New Right, Identity Europa, I mean, one of Dugan's translators was actually uh, Richard Spencer's ex-wife. Yeah. Um, so there's a network here you can kind of start to see, and I believe that Dugan is the key linchpin, at least within Russia, that ties a lot of these groups together. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I do want to, so I want to ask you, um, yeah, because you just mentioned, you know, this this idea about NATO, and I'm just, I am curious, and we'll get maybe into some disagreements yeah, yeah, yeah. here in a, here in a second, but sure, what what role do you think um, NATO has played in bringing this situation? Right, because like there, there's a there's a there's a there's a fear here that, and I've seen liberals do this, I've seen like the Ezra Kleins of the world and stuff do this, which is in order to underemphasize the role of NATO and the role of the U.S. and the Maidan coup and the funding of Nazis. They overemphasize the ideas in Putin's head. Either uh -huh. either they go, either they say Putin's a madman, he's crazy, there's no rational reason why he's doing this, or they they turn and Ezra Klein did this explicitly to whether or not they call it Duganism or not. They, they they turn to what Putin justified the invasion in the initial thing as the main explanation. Putin is doing this because he believes these ideas about the world and about Russia and about the real Russian people, and he's going to reclaim what he sees as a, a segment of, of the Russian people. And this is used as a way to not talk about the other things. And I think there's a real mm. issue there. So I'm just, your, your personal opinion, where do you fit in that spectrum um, of of understanding the role of the NATO and, and of the U.S. in this current conflict. Well, I mean, I think everybody's wrong in this entire situation, dude. Like, I'm no friend yeah. or advocate of NATO or U.S. imperialism. Uh, likewise, I, I'm no friend of, like, uh, like, like, part of me is just really suspicious around uh, the discourse of, like, multipolarity. Like, I had tweeted at some point, like, I don't know if people understand how much work the word multipolarity is doing to posit russia as a great power like that so i'm a little suspect mm. over this entire discourse um but i'm also like you know is putin rational at this point i you know it, the invasion of ukraine does not seem like a rational decision to make considering that every you know intelligence agency or, or, or you know pundit didn't even see this happening because it seemed like an irrational action at that point mm -hmm. um so i i get it man there's like it 
I, I come down as like no war but class war because I'm not going to mm -hmm. like side with a capitalist uh, entity fighting another capitalist entity uh, over expansionism for one or the other. Um, but I also like, I mean, somebody had mentioned at one point that like, yeah, you know, like you can dismiss the victims of U.S. imperialism by because they don't have the right economic system or something. I'm like, you know, I, I, I think there's an argument to be made that the whole of this endeavor is linked to a, uh, a revanchism, which is highly uh, fascistic, patriarchal. Um, and and it's it's got all, I mean, if it walks like a duck and sings like a duck, whatever, you know, it's got all the markings of a of a Russian neo-fascism. Uh, mm. So I, you know, I'm not, I'm not a pro-Russia person. I'm certainly not a pro-US person. And, and as far as the independence of Ukraine is concerned, man, I don't, I'm just like, can we stop killing people? Because like, I don't yeah. want, I'm, I'm not supporting either side that's leading to atrocities of working people. You know, at the end of the Absolutely. day, I feel like communism is, you're supposed to advocate for the working class. And and you can't just advocate one side of the of a war like it's a, like it's a game of football or something, you know, and and, right. and it goes back to like this Eurasianism thing is like, you know, nationalism is like, it's like when you go to a football game and you just cheer because you want to cheer, you're not actually cheering because the team is something that's important to you, you know, like mm. uh, and nationalism kind of has a participatory angle in it that's similar to that. And I think it's similar on the Eurasian front that way as well. Um but yeah, I just, I think, man, everybody's wrong in this situation. I, I can't cheer for one side or the other. I'm really worried about fascism in my studies and uh, in, in what I'm interested in, you know, and, uh, and I don't, you know, I, and I know there's like Russia phobia going on right now. And, and, yeah. and I'm, and I'm really like, you know, part of the 10,000 foot view in all of this, man, um, getting rid of like RT recently, right? Uh, part of the big 10,000 foot view is I think that like it's a bit of Western chauvinism to think that the United States is the only country that is able to deploy effective propaganda or to True. muddy the information waters or to build a fifth column or, or any of those things. Right. So, so I look at um, the last 10 years and I'm like, I think, you know, back in the 2016 election, if you were a communist or anywhere further left than liberal, if you brought up Russiagate, People did not take that kindly, and you couldn't speak of those mm -hmm. things. Um, but also, there's this aspect of like, so if there was Russian interference, and I think we might have to take a step back and look at that now, and maybe examine the possibility that there was. Um, we also have to look at you know the engineering of Brexit, and you don't just like disrupt an American election and engineer Brexit through the Bannon Cambridge Analytical stuff just so you can take Ukraine. Like, I think there's a larger geopolitical motive that could be answered for uh, within the context of, uh, of ge foundations of geopolitics and perhaps this new Russian geopolitical program that's, that's taking shape right now. Um, but yeah, so I, I don't know, I, if I'm answering your original question, like where I come down with NATO is I just think everybody's wrong in this situation. And, and I, um, and I'm, I, I'm especially fearful of, a, a sort of spiritually driven fascism because one thing that 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 Dugan talks about is a national idea and and the concept of a national idea within the context of Russian history with the ideological bottom falling out of like you know uh, the fall of the Soviet Union you know just uh, you know 70 years 80 years before that like uh, the Russia the Empire had fallen right so like I couldn't imagine what it would be like to go through an ideological uh, collapse like that. 
Um, yeah. Some of the characters uh, that I've been researching lived through both of those things, right? So when the Soviet Union fell in 91, there was this resurgence of patriotism and there was patriotic socialism that happened in Russia at that point. And there's still people that carry on in Russia a sort of a political party of a patriotic socialism. Um, but there's all sorts of ideological contradictions that came about as a result of this need for a national idea. And if you don't think the yeah. national idea is like an important enough concept, right? Well, uh, it turns out that like the, the Azov Battalion, in their symbols, it, it looks like an N with an I through the middle of it. It's actually, it's a reworked Nazi symbol. But some of the guys from Azov yeah. Battalion have said that that N and the I is arranged in that way to 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 specifically symbolize the concept of N and I for national idea. Mm. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. So okay, I'll I'll give you my some of my thoughts, yeah. and maybe we can we can move on after this. Sure. But I think this is interesting, and especially on the left, these these disagreements kind of do exist. It's just really, I think between you and I, it's not really a matter of disagreements. It's a matter of where we place the emphasis. Sure. Perhaps so I'll just go off on a few points here. One, just to talk about the Russia Gate scenario. Now, like, you know, do I think that Russia attempted to interfere in some extent with just the, especially the narratives going around, around the election? Absolutely. Because I think Russia sees in its interest a splitting, uh, you know, a, a um, intensification of the contradictions that exist in quote unquote enemy states or unfriendly states. And so, you know, Russia does not need to come into the United States and create conflict. I mean, America is is divided every which way already. We do not need any outside influence to do that. And I think the election and everything would have gone exactly the same as it did, whether or not Russia even existed as a country. You know, um, that's that's my personal opinion. Now they'll play on they'll play on splits, and it, it behooves them to split off the UK from Europe. In fact, that's uh, been explicitly stated as one of the goals: um, split the UK off from the rest of Europe, split Europe off from the, their relationship with with the United States, etc. Um, so you can see why that works. Now, anytime we're in America talking about Russia, uh, about government interference and interference in elections, we just have to point out that America does it more and worse mm -hmm. than anybody in the whole world. Yeah. And I just think we have to play that role because we live in this society where the U.S.'s ruling class's narratives are the ones being propagated, just like over in Russia, certain narratives are prioritized, including completely made-up nonsense, um, because it serves the ruling elite of that society. But we have to focus on our ruling elite here. Um, and so, you know, I, I don't want to overemphasize the role Russia plays in things like Brexit or the election of Trump. I think those things would have happened regardless, and they are the results of variables much outside of anything that Russia could possibly hope to influence. Um, and then the, the other point I wanted to make is you're 100% right that I think the principled communist position on this conflict, we want peace ASAP. Yeah. You know, the, the Russian masses are suffering under the brutal sanction regime. The Ukrainian masses are being brutalized. The pictures coming out of Ukraine break my fucking heart. And even, I mean, to a much lesser extent, the people in the West are just like working people have to pay fucking five, six, seven dollars a gallon for gas now because we got to stick it to Putin. So the masses, the regular working people in all countries are being fucked. And I think a communist not thinking about that and just emphasizing which state they prefer to win out, I think is an error. And I think we're seeing that quite a bit. I agree with you. There are no good guys. And I would even include Ukraine mm. as not a good guy. Yeah. The Ukrainian state itself is not, you know, we, we hear this line 
Ukraine's fighting for their democracy. No, Ukraine has no more of a democracy than the United States or Russia, which is to say regular people have no say in policy, in how their lives are shaped, anything like that. And it's and Ukraine is just as corrupt. In, in Russia and in the U.S., oligarchs with lots of money and corporations dictate policy much more than regular working people. So what Ukraine is fighting for is not a democracy in, in any socialist sense, but for their independence, which... I do support. I think the Ukrainian people have the right to self-determine and take their society and their people in whatever direction that they deem fit democratically. Um, and so, but, you know, here in the U.S., we're just given this Disney movie-ass breakdown of here are the good guys and here are the bad guys. And Putin's a madman, super villain. And, you know, Zelensky is like Harry Potter fighting Voldemort. And, like, that, that really is the narrative, not the Harry Potter stuff. But that good, bad, easy binary is a narrative that not only takes a hold of the American mind, but that the American ruling class loves after what it did in Iraq and Afghanistan and Libya and Syria and Somalia and Lem- in Yemen, it gets to pretend that it is on the moral high horse for the first time in a long time. And, and, and people that are invested in the American project are gulping that up. So I don't know. All those, I think we mostly agree on this. I just think we kind of place the emphasis in slightly different areas. Yeah, no, totally. Um, I think, uh, I think if we're asking the question, like whose actions caused Putin to do this, it's certainly on the West. Right. But uh, I think if we're asking, like, what caused this, there's there's multiple answers. Um, yeah. So it's just a distinction of the question as well, I think. Uh, but, totally. yeah, you're absolutely right. And there is a there is a very worrying, huge, larger than just the Azov Battalion fascist present in the Ukrainian state. We just saw Zelensky uh, ban 11 parties uh, ostensibly because they have Russian ties, but that the Socialist Party, the Progressive Party, the Progressive Socialist Party, it's left wing um, movements. Most of all, no Nazi parties or far right parties uh, were, were banned, but they're nationalists, so that makes some sense if you're going with the Russian connection narrative, I guess. Um, but then, then just the uh, the presence of the right sector, the presence of ultra nationalists within Ukraine, the hyper anti black racism that exists, and these horrific pictures coming out of Western Ukraine of of Roma women, you know, tied around light poles. And having this fucking chemical concoction thrown on their face um, to make it appear green, they're just being brutalized. While Ukrainian men and women and soldiers and regular people are just walking around, milling around like it's normal. So um, Russia has definitely fascist forces and certainly ultra-nationalist forces. The U.S., we know damn well, has those same forces, and so does Ukraine. And so I, I think we, 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 our job is to kind of complicate this this easy binary narrative that most Americans are being force fed and accepting. Yeah, um, I also because I haven't mentioned this so far, man. I also want to say that in 2014, uh, part of the reason why uh, Alexander Dugin was is unable to teach at Moscow State University anymore uh, is yeah. because he called for the genocide of Ukrainian people as far back as 2014, dude. Um, so, and he's even like compared these people, like saying they're not real Russians, and you know, so it's it's. It's tragic. The Western Ukrainians, or uh, just talking about Ukrainians in general, man. Um, wow. Yeah, wow. Um, he he's called for it uh, on Facebook. He's been on like television in Russia saying "kill, kill, kill." Um, there's really it's Jesus. it's horrific stuff, you know. But like, uh, I also don't think that Dugin is at all disapproving of what's happening there. Um, yeah, which no, makes us <laughs> yeah yeah so. 
Not at all. So let's go ahead and talk about this this red brown stuff because I think okay. it's interesting, and you yeah. talk about it in your episode. So in your re- recent episode, we need to talk about Alexander Dugan on your podcast, No Easy Answers. You end the episode with some thoughts on what this all means for the world and the left, and you discuss a red brown alliances and the need for communists to not dismiss these charges out of hand, but to seriously to take them seriously, even if they're not a huge chunk of our movement, they're still there and they need to be taken seriously by communists. Um, can you talk about this? How big the actual threat is and sort of what specific formations on the left have succumbed to or are at least flirting with this Dugan style fascism or red brown alliance attempt right um so i don't know that i can give a specific answer to how large this threat is but i i think that if you have listened to this conversation so far and you've absorbed the concepts and the vocabulary um I think you'll understand that this is, at least, it's very widespread on the left, um, because Dugan's ideology is seductive, man, um, and I'm especially concerned for young comrades who are eager to mm. assume a political identity on the Cartesian graph, right? So if you're one of these people that's looking around, that's like, uh, hey, maybe I'm an anarcho-communist, or, or you know what, maybe anarcho-syndicalist, or, or I'm a I'm a paleo, go to, I don't know, man. Just, you know, I think that if you're trying to like <laughs> identify somewhere and find a sort of ideological home, uh, there is, uh, the, within the coded language and, and, and sort of ulterior motivations, uh, I think the stuff can be very seductive and, uh, and I'm worried about that, you know? Um, in, in addition to that, like in a recent interview I had with, uh, Dr. Wazid Azal, uh, Wahid Azal, he, yeah. um, he's a Sufi Muslim, right? And he was searching for left activist spaces after 9-11 um, that were ecologically minded and spiritually affirming. And he wrote a 2016 article um, about Duganists actually recruiting specifically anti-imperialists and uh, anti-Salafi Muslims uh, via social media. So, um, mm. and, and tragically, you know, like uh, Wahid... Um, you know, when I spoke to him, he actually told me about how he and his wife became kind of, they were living in Berlin, and they became uh, kind of the, the resident Antifa uh, organizers of the area, but um, mysteriously, his, his wife was poisoned, and she passed away, and he has uh, he reported that to the police in Berlin, and they basically told him that he needed to move away for safety, so he, he moved to Australia with his daughter uh, for safety, and he's uh, convinced that Duganists that uh, that he was in the midst of in Berlin in these organizing spaces are connected to the uh, mysterious uh, death of his wife. Um, so that's mm. especially tragic and something that I I just covered recently on No Easy Answers. Um, but there's there's also like you know like this group called CPI Center for Political Innovation. I mean they are the main proponents of this sort of uh, patriotic socialism thing you've seen pop up in the discourse. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and certain streamers have taken this up, namely like like Jackson Hinkle and Peter Coffin. And, you know, of course, these two are under the umbrella of Caleb Maupin, who is formerly of Russia Today. Uh, and, and they recently held a conference in Austin. I don't know if you guys saw that on Twitter with like the Russian flag and the United States flag and the bust of Abraham Lincoln behind him. <laughs> I mean, it was really wild, man. Um and so yeah. you see these guys on the internet also that subscribe to various aspects of Duganist thought, whether it's uh, patriotic socialism, which Dugan himself was trying to revamp patriotism uh, during uh, perestroika at towards the end of the uh, Soviet Union, right? So that's a Duganist-connected concept as well. 
Um, but you see them, you know, these people online that are like subscribing to patriotic socialism or multinational pluralism. These guys have like a bunch of flags in their handles. Um, well, that is basically Duganist ideology working under the banner of multiculturalism or national pluralism and speaking to multi these guys speak to multipolarity using the concepts of the less but which is like you know diversity and inclusion but they they weaponize these these things against the left itself um so and again like to to be reminded of like the end of dugan's article called fascism borderless and red uh you know he says um not a faded brownish pinkish national capitalism but the blinding dawn of a new Russian revolution, fascism, borderless as our lands and red as our blood. So I, mm. I mean, so I don't know how widespread this is, but it's 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 certainly like if if listeners have been listening to this and understanding this, the more they sit with these ideas, I am certain that if you spend time online on Twitter, on YouTube, if you take in some of the various voices uh, around the left, uh, anti-imperialists at this point, since they were recruiting them, you you will actually pick up little bits and pieces of this ideology present in in these voices, uh, and it's. It's out there, and I, I just want folks to be aware of it and take it seriously, especially younger comrades who are looking for an ideological yes. home that are maybe... Uh, I mean, as part of this is dangerous to even study because, you know, you feel yourself sympathetic to some of the arguments being posed. And this is where it goes back yeah. to, like, sharpening your own ideological blade, right? Like, you come out on the other side adhering stronger, more strongly to your principles, uh, especially your first principles and, and being a principled Marxist. Um, but you understand that the slipperiness and seductiveness of these texts is real, and, um, and it's just something that I think folks need to be aware of. Yeah, you make a really good point about the uh, the allure of some of these critiques because, you know, I'm somebody that is very, I know who the yeah. fuck I am, I know yeah. what the fuck I believe, I read fascist literature because I'm curious, I want to understand this movement, it's obviously something that communists need to deal with. Um, and I find the fascist critiques of liberalism interesting. Yeah. I mean, like, the, it's very interesting. Sometimes completely aligns uh, with my own critiques of liberalism, right? And so you can now I walk out of that knowing, as you say, who I am, what I believe. I'm not swayed towards fascism because they make some good points about liberals, mm -hmm. right? Um, uh, the three-way fight all day. Um, but you're 100% right about young people coming into the left, trying to find themselves, having all these voices pulling them every which way, especially if you're white, especially if you're not ready to like really critique Americanism and you're like, well, I kind of like the flag and you know, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> you can easily be pulled in that direction. Um, but, and, and, and there's a hesitance uh, on the part of the left broadly to, especially the communist left, to indulge or to even pay heed to this idea that the red-brown alliance is real because it is overused by some anarchists, but mostly by liberals against Marxists. I mean, you know, they, they overemphasize this. They're always using the horseshoe theory, for example, which is, a, you know, a, basically a, a red-brown claim. The further left you go, the closer to fascism you get, which we completely and utterly reject. Mm -hmm. Liberalism is closer to fascism than communism, and actually liberalism has this amazing tendency of giving rise to fascism over and over and over again, um, which should be maybe investigated if you're a liberal. Um, so I can see why there's some hesitance. Like, no, fuck you. you red-brown alliance is just this liberal trope launched at Marxist. It's not real. Um, but again, that's overcorrecting too far in the other direction. And um, 
for young people, uh, it's certainly true. For some European factions, I can see this red-brown alliance being particularly potent. But then, yeah, here here at home, and you know, these are not your words; these are mine. But I will straight up call these patriotic socialists, these CPI people, fucking clowns. And looking at their looking at their conference. Yeah. Okay, if you're a communist in the United fucking States of America, and you go to a communist anti-imperialist organization or a conference, and it's almost all white guys wearing business casual outfits waving the American flag, my friend, <laughs> you have you have taken a radical detour in your political development, and you've ended up at a cul-de-sac. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, it's worth dunking on, on these guys. Because they, they are clowns, but their message is potent to a certain sort of person or a certain naive person looking for left-wing, uh, you know, sort of analyses. And for that reason, they should be called out and, and combated. Um, and, and you talk about Kayla Maupin in, in particular meeting with Dugan and actually having conversations with him. Do you want to you touch on that a little bit? I don't care yeah, if yeah, I get blown um, back from these guys at all. No, nah, man, dude, like, he, yeah. I mean, yeah. It's not so much that he met with Dugan as much as he sat down at a table with him in front of a flag with the Eurasian uh, eight-pointed arrows symbol on top of, like, Asia on this flag, right? So he's sitting in front of a Eurasianist flag, uh, being highly deferent to Dugan's ideas, um, talking about how people should engage with his work. Um, and, you know, it's... When you get paid to go out to, like... Uh, I don't know, like a seminar, uh, an anti-war seminar in Iran, and Claudio Muti is on that same panel with you, who is a influencer of Dugan, or is rather an inspiration of someone that uh, that Dugan takes influence from. Like the, the dots again. This goes back to the circumstantial stuff, um, but then you have the coded language, and your entire organization organization is useful for fascists, um, <laughs> and. Uh, yeah, I mean, and so there is this uh, this notion that, like, I mean, this is, it's, I, I, I strongly disagree, and Caleb has been a subject of investigation for me because of how useful for fascists that entire organization is. Um, and like you said, when you end up in a conference full of a bunch of white guys, uh, specifically with people who are actually... Um, I mean, the people that gave speeches there. You can go. You can, all these speeches are online now, so you can yeah. you can go listen to Haas talk about how uh, leftists should s- stop being a reservoir that uh, communists uh, recruit from. I mean, like, <laughs> what is that? Like, you're. It's like you've gone from being like, hey, maybe we should talk to some of these QAnon January six people to now we should specifically recruit from uh, fascists and conservatives and. You know, it's it's completely misguided at best and and crypto fascist at worst. Um, and it's a, and like I said, it, I don't even want to give them the credit of import because they're small fries, right? They're they're little yeah. people and they're they're small. It's a small organization, um, mm-hmm. but you know they they've stimulated some of the discourse. And that honestly, that's that's we're losing comrades to this. We're losing mm. people that like fall into uh, the orbit of people like Caleb Maupin. Uh, we're losing people who were otherwise comrades who have been deceived and fall into this sort of uh, supporting of multipolarity, but actually it's underneath like a Duganist sort of operation versus like fighting for a better world that that all principal communists should be doing, you know, so. Advancing the interest of a certain state over the interest of the masses at large. Yeah, I mean it's it's nationalist at, at its root for sure, um, yeah. and so uh, that's primarily uh, one of the main reasons why I got interested in this stuff. Because I, 
I'm just tired of losing comrades, man. You go from trusting a voice one day to having a guy being a COVID conspiritual or conspiritualist, <laughs> you know, the next day, you know? Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. So a lot of this stuff, man, I, and, and your listeners, everybody out there, I, after you listen to this and you really absorb this stuff, go listen to what, you know, go look at like stuff from the gray zone, go look at, um, you know, some of the work from Alexander Reed Ross, um, go l- just take all this stuff and understand that it's real. It's out there. It's geopolitically important. It's topical at the moment. And we're talking about all this stuff, but I mean, I, I'm not sitting over here like Charlie in the basement kind of thing. Like, uh, you know, with a, with a, uh, a bulletin board with red yarn drawn from point to point. I mean, these are all things that you can find for yourself. Uh, and I don't look at this as conspiratorial. I look at this as like kind of self-evident in, in many different scattered ways. So, yeah. Yeah. We, we did an episode on Rev Left and Red Men. It's called On Patriotism, where we really take this entire idea that the American left should embrace patriotism to task. And so if you're interested in us demolishing that argument, you can go you can go check that out for sure. Um, but yeah, specifically, I think I definitely with uh, young people in particular, so this as the center falls out of American politics. People are looking for alternatives and you can look left or you can look right. And there's a lot of different options on both directions. But we have to know that a lot of these people looking will be on YouTube. They'll be out algorithmically primed. They'll be sent in certain directions. And uh, yeah, we have to we have to battle on this front for the minds of young people looking for alternatives so that they turn real left, not right um, or turning right under the pretense that they're actually turning left. Right. We have to we have to do that work. Um, and we, we, we can do that without lending credence to the over application of these terms. We, we, we can combat liberalism as well, um, but we have to combat fascism at the same time. Um, so let's go ahead and, and move on. One more question before yeah. we, we wrap up here. And this is sort of a multi-pronged. And I'll, it's sort of a long one, but I'm going to lay it out there so that it's very clear what we're, what we're discussing. And I want to give you the opportunity to, to respond to, to some of these things. So um, I liked your episode on on um, on Dugan. It was very informative. It was part of my prep for this episode. It was really great. But um, at not but but you know at the end uh, you make some claims, and I would like to talk to you about those. So um, in that episode, you argue that the largest threat from Dugan and, and his theories are the attack that they pose to the Enlightenment. And then you go on to say that you know these Western these are Western values versus Eastern values, irrationalism versus reason mysticism versus science, reaction versus progress, and this is the polarization of the world. Uh, then you go on to suggest that Putin might not stop, might not stop at Ukraine. You don't make a hard claim, but you say might not stop at Ukraine's border, um, but they might even continue westward. Now, I personally fundamentally sort of question both of these assertions insofar as I even understand them. Uh, for the latter claim, I would argue that while Dugan's theories certainly hold some sway in Russia, Putin is primarily acting out of material and geopolitical interests, not, you know, about gas pipelines and NATO expansion, not on the ideas that Dugan has generated and popularized. I think Putin probably puts Dugan's ideas forward to help flesh out the justifications for this invasion, you know, i.e. Ukraine is not a separate people from Russia. We should unite the Russian people across great little and white Russia, etc. But I ultimately think he is acting out of other interests. Um, as for the former claim, I would argue that this binary that you've set up is is too simplistic and reductive. I think there is no real clear divide between East and West. Ultimately, it's a sort of shorthand that we use to talk about geopolitical blocks, um, but you don't want to reify that. And I think the ideas that you pit against each other actually flourish simultaneously and fully 
in both Eastern and Western societies of all different kinds. I also think there's a fundamental irrationalism, mystification, and reaction at the core of the liberal world order and liberal ideology as well, um, as within every Western liberal capitalist society on earth. And I think framing it as a liberal, rational, democratic West versus the irrational, mystical, and perhaps despotic East is simply incorrect. Now, I, I could have misunderstood your argument, so please correct me if I'm wrong. But if I'm not, and these are more or less correct, uh, can you kind of just let me know what your response and thoughts are to, to these critiques and concerns of mine? Yeah, absolutely. And, and thanks for asking that, man. Um, so in that podcast, when I was trying to like pan out to this 10,000 foot view, um, what I had said was that this is the biggest culture war in the world dating back to the French Revolution. These are Western values, secularism, individualism, and universalism versus Eastern values of the non-secular, collective, and particular. Uh, and I went on to say, and I, there's, this is kind of a grammatical uh, thing where like this is the start of a whole new sentence. Um, and I could understand why when I say this is irrationalism versus reason. Uh, mm. Some might take that to be like, oh, well, he's attributing irrationalism to all of the East. And when I say this is mysticism versus scientism, uh, maybe mysticism being the East and scientism being the West, um, I could see how this could be, especially when I say like this is reactionary versus progressive. Now, this could be all seen as if like I'm attributing irrationalism and mysticism to the East, uh, and, and that could be seen as a sort of problematic way of stating that. Um, but I, it, that, that wasn't my intention. My intention was to compare the secularism, individuality, and liberalism to Eastern values of non-secularism, meaning like religious uh, things, collectivity, and particularism of cultures, right? Um, mm. But so within all this, though, I, I, I'm saying all this because this is the way that Alexander Dugan sees it. Alexander mm. Dugan sees the war in Ukraine not just against the U.S., but uh, as, or not just against Ukraine, but against Western modernity, the United States at the center of that. Um, you can go and find these things like, you know, he literally, um, you know, crucial to Dugan's politics is the con classical conception of the conservative revolution that overturns the post-Enlightenment world. You know, even mm. the Nazis at, 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 during their time uh, had aspirations of, overturning the French Revolution. You know, this is also something that speaks to, like, the Nietzschean and Heideggerian commitments of destroying modernity, right? Um, so, when I say it's, like, polarizing East versus West, I mean, I understand that, like, if, if Russia has a tradition of, of orthodoxy and, and uh, traditional sort of Russian values, well, they also have individuals who um, uh, have traditions of, of wanting universal human rights and democracy within the geographical area of Russia, right? So it is an oversimplification to the degree that this is like the giant war of continents, the giant continental confrontation that Halford McKinder described that Dugan wishes to implement a political program towards. Um, so this is described by Dugan as like land power versus sea power, other like McKinder uh, terminology. Um, this is also something that Dugan spoke about in terms of, uh, you know, in a recent speech, he addressed like Western press uh, in English. And he said something to the extent of like Francis Fukuyama was absolutely wrong and Samuel Huntington was absolutely right. Fukuyama meaning like the end of history and that we had moved from like 
uh, a path of progress to a path of perfection and that liberalism had won out. Um, and Samuel Huntington, uh, what he means by that is Samuel Huntington wrote like Class of Civilizations and the Remaking of the World Order. And, and he basically said the primary source of conflict in the post-Cold War world would be people's cultural and religious identities and that future wars would be fought not by countries, but between cultures. Mm. So you can see how, like, Dugan is, when I say it's a culture war, I don't mean it like Mr. Potato Head. I mean, like, it is a war, a literal war of cultures, of what cultures value, of a polarization of Dugan seeming to represent Eastern values, a return to tradition that is uh, native within the peoples that he uh, represents uh, in greater Russia the sort of multi-ethnic Eurasian multinational nationalism with Russia being the core of uh, a multi-ethnic geographical area in Asia. Like, all of this only makes sense in the full context of what Dugin's project is. So I hope that, like, listeners can understand if they go back and listen to that episode or if they already have listened to that episode. I did get a little bit of pushback on that from a YouTube commenter, and that's that's on the YouTube comment. You can go and read that. Um, but, yeah, like, I, I say that this is a the biggest pushback against Enlightenment values because that is exactly what Dugan wants to do. And and I, I also, I, I've been very hesitant to, like, part of the reason why, going back to the very beginning of this conversation, when I said I've been hesitant that Dugan... To, to dignify him as a philosopher. Because what do you do with philosophers? You, you, you situate them, you study them, you learn about them, you learn about their lives and how that may have influenced their perspectives, right? But if you look at Dugan, if we're going to, to place Dugan uh, historically it, as it relates to previous thinkers throughout the sort of anti-enlightenment uh, you know, train of thought from everybody from like Joseph de Maestra to Edmund Burke to maybe even like Michael Oakeshott um, all the way to Heidegger and Nietzsche, then Dugan would perhaps be um, something far more dangerous and real than any of these thinkers um, because we've had nothing but reactionaries, right? We've had people that react to the French Revolution, that criticize the French Revolution. We've had people that critique modernities. This has been purely critique coming from the reactionary school of thought. And so Dugan, insofar as he is implemented or insofar as he is drafted up and Putin is loosely following a geopolitical program, for Dugan, this being a pushback against Enlightenment values, that would give Dugan a, a sort of primacy as like a major philosopher that we'd have to teach him in universities, you know, and history would have to write this stuff down in such a way that gives him great import. And I, I, I am, I, I really hope it doesn't come to that because I, I think that Dugan uh, is inconsistent. His writing is terrible. His ideas are are, are the worst. And I, <laughs> I, I am reluctant to give him that sort of import. So all that being said, I hope that, um, that that answers your question towards like uh, towards the concept of like um, you know Dugan and the East versus West thing, um, and you had one more. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll rephrase that sure. second question just really quickly. Yeah. So, w- would you say it's fair that that your argument here is that um, part of it is that there is a false a sense of continuity across sentences that you didn't mean, and that you're actually talking about Dugan's binary that he props up. You're not, you are not advocating for this sort of binary. Am I correct? (laughs) Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. Like, it was a 10,000 foot view that I tried to sort of 
put in place from a Dugan sort of ideological perspective, thinking through to the logical end with all of its various impl- implications that that might have. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then the other point I just wanted to make is about liberal and Marxism relationship to modernity and the enlightenment, mm. because I think as a Marxist, we need to defend um, the promise of the enlightenment against reaction. Yeah. But at the same time, we need to critique liberalism for its failure to actually live up to the standards that it pretends to in the Enlightenment. Um, Because, you know, we've had episodes where we just talk about the liberal modernity, the liberal version of Enlightenment, and the Marxist critique of, like, this half-Enlightenment, like this this sort of, you know, half-developed Enlightenment of liberalism where they take these ideas and they promote them and they actually say, this is what we're all about— but the way they actually act in the world is in direct opposition to those supposed values. So we have to defend um, certain elements of modernity and the full enlightenment um, from fascists. And we also have to critique the, the half-born or you know, the, 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 the aborted version of the enlightenment that liberals proclaim to carry forward. And as Marxists, we say, we believe in the enlightenment. We actually want to carry it to its full extent. And that means not just seeing through the mystifications of religion versus secularism or science, but also the mystifications liberalism props up about itself Um, and and the the ways that liberalism fails to live up in so many ways to the ideals that they proclaim that they stand by. And so, again, this three-way fight narrative becomes very helpful here because we don't want to take the sides of fascists, nor do we want to find ourselves aligning fully with liberals in our fear and desperate attempt to fight the fascists, because we know liberalism itself creates the conditions that fascism grows out of. And so I think that three-way fight is very helpful here conceptually. Yeah, man. And the uh, the other thing you asked about, like, I mean, there was this notion when, uh, and I don't know that it's being even spoken about at this point now with the stalls that the Russian army have had, but there was this notion when he first invaded Ukraine that he wasn't going to stop at Lviv or the western border of Ukraine. Um, and, and in the same sort of way that I feel like Dugan is not safe to ignore anymore, um, in the same way that he's predicted the annexation of Ukraine, uh, the war in Georgia, uh, the taking of Crimea, uh, and, and the way that he has a fully developed political program in foundations of geopolitics, uh, there is no line in foundation of geopolitics that says, hey, take Ukraine and then stop at the western border. It's like, mm-hmm. no, dude, like there's plans for the Finlandization of all of Europe. You know, um, there's also this uh, this notion within um, Russian history that Russia is messianic in a way that it has a responsibility to protect Europe or to save Europe insofar that Russian is partly European, um, but they have historically stopped Napoleon. You know, they have historically um, marched all the way to Berlin to save Europe from fascism. Right. So so there is this this sort of concept within Eurasianism. Uh, of saving Europe from Europe, um, of having Europe <laughs> return to its own sort of authentic Dasein, uh, with mm. the, to use Heidegger and Dugan as sort of terminology, right? Um, so all that being said, um, just in the same way it's not safe to ignore Dugan anymore, Dugan, would n- Dugan doesn't want to stop at the western border of Ukraine, and if he's been accurate at predicting what's going on so far, and if we think he's following foundations of geopolitics, well, that's what foundations of geopolitics said. And that's why I said, hey, you know, this guy may not stop at the western border of Ukraine. Mm. 
Yeah, so so in my estimation, based on where we are, and you did record that episode right as the invasion was happening. Yeah, yeah. So there's that fog of war moment. Everybody's ripping off analysis and firing it off. Um, you know, we don't really know how things are developing. Now we can see a, um, a little bit later that things have developed in a certain direction. My argument and my sense of it uh, would be that it's not that Putin is pursuing a Duganist line in its entirety. I think Putin is probably engaged with and taken on board certain elements yeah. of Dugan's philosophy, used it opportunistically um, to justify uh, his invasion. But ultimately, uh, and I also think that he uh, is a, a Duganist in the sense that there's certain strategic things he's trying to accomplish, like splitting off the UK from Europe and splitting off Europe from US-led domination. But it's clear that that has uh, implications for NATO, right? NATO is dominated by the US. If you can split if you can split that um, alliance between uh, Western Europe and the US, you could advance Russian interests much more easily. So for me, I feel like Putin's doing a pared down version, opportunistically taking some things from Dugan, but certainly not taking his entire um, worldview and entire project on board. And I think ultimately what we're going to see is is that there's no way in hell, in my opinion, and you can disagree, right, right. that Putin is going to go westward. Uh, I, I don't think that is in the cards whatsoever. I think the absolute most that he would do would be a partition, uh, partitioning Eastern Ukraine, taking it over, making it, or making it a client state like Belarus, allowing Western Ukraine to uh, basically do whatever it wants under the Zelensky administration. Um, but I think actually what's more likely is it's this bomb and, and negotiate uh, attempt on Putin's part. You've pushed us from Putin's perspective. NATO, the U.S., Ukraine, you've pushed us into a corner. We're great Russia. We're not taking it. We're striking out. I'm going to fuck up your capacity to militarily attack us in the future. Um, and I'm going to continue to devastate your country infrastructurally and economically until you agree to certain demands. And those demands are not, um, you know, crazy, irrational demands, nor are they I want to take over the world like Hitler did demands. They are. Let me have Crimea. Let uh, the, the Donbass be an independent state. And please promise that Ukraine is going to remain neutral with regards to NATO and with regards to acting as a staging ground for NATO's weapons. So even though Ukraine is not a part of NATO and perhaps would never even be allowed to become formally a part of NATO, at least before this, they are using <laughs> Ukraine and have been using Ukraine as a sorting sort of staging ground, specifically since 2014 and the Maidan coup revolution, however you want to talk about it. The U.S. has been funding, funneling, and supporting uh, this war in, in, in the Donbass. Um, and they are on the side of the Ukrainian nationalists, which have amongst them literal fascists, literal Nazis, um, etc. So I think all of those things are, are more likely than um, we take Ukraine and we continue westward. What, what are your thoughts? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think it comes down to like a question of rationality, you know, because we didn't think it was a rational choice for him to uh, go into Ukraine when heretofore he's been a seemingly rational character, right? So it's a question of like, uh, is he going to all of a sudden return to rationality and just take what he can get out of negotiations and, and this war? Or is he going to continue with irrational decision-making? And it may not even just be like progressing further west and maybe something else. I'm not even sure. But that's kind of the, the thing, right? It's like, how do you predict irrationality? It kind of is beyond reason. Um, the second thing, the independent states, dude, like, I, I, yeah, sure, he recognized the independent states. But I, I think in terms of uh, Putin, I think he... I don't think that it'll be long before if those are completely recognized as independent states, they'll have Russian forces occupying those states totally. at some point soon thereafter, right? Um, and the third thing is that um, 
And I, and I know I didn't mention this before, but like going back to Dugan and Foundations of Geopolitics, he actually literally says in that book, like that Russia should be the staging ground for an anti-American revolution. Hmm. So um, take that for what it will, you know, I mean, I, I think that uh, all of these things are connected uh, and I don't have any doubts that that Putin somehow sees the um, the occupation of Ukraine or the military incursion as a pushback against American hegemony, as a pushback against sort of Western dominance. Um, and maybe on a philosophical level, like Dugan feels that it's a pushback against enlightenment values. I don't know if like Dugan thinks about like, oh, we're winning one for Joseph de Maestra or something. You mm -hmm. know, I don't think that like he's doing that, but I, but I do think that it, it holds a specific uh, significance for both Putin and for Dugan. Dugan more on a philosophical eschatological sort of uh, co great confrontation of land and sea power sort of thing. And for Putin, it's probably just a pushback against like the dominance of liberal hegemony um, and a sort of uh, reassertion of Russia as a capable and powerful state to uh, not to be trifled with in a way. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. For sure. Yeah. Um, just one point about the, because we've talked about it a few sure. times, this irrationality point. Um, and, and, you know, this is a widespread thing. Not necessarily that Putin is a crazy man, although that is a, that is a narrative, but that this move was fundamentally irrational and that he's he's not getting out of it what he might have thought, right? We hear the word miscalculation. And so if you try to take for granted that Putin is a rational actor, um, what he could have thought is this is going to put huge pressure on already existing divides within NATO and actually weaken that formation. It's done the opposite, but you can see how a, a reasonable, rational person could come to the conclusion with Germany getting 30% of its gas from Russia and Europe in general getting huge portions of its natural gas from Russia um, and the U.S.'s belligerence and uncompromising nature that you could facilitate, especially after Trump and the delegitimization of, of the U.S. empire. Um, you could you could actually widen these cracks, and that's not wholly irrational, even if it was ultimately wrong. Um, but then I'd also say that there's a there's a fucking fine line between irrationally invading Ukraine and this is a surprise attack. I am not showing my cards. I've obviously he had to plan it for a year out because this the amassing of forces on the border took a year. Um, I'm I'm going to not do anything that would indicate that I'm about to make this move as much as, as possible. Um, and when it, when it hits, it's going to be felt like it's irrational because it's going to come out of seemingly nowhere. But we've been planning it for a long time. These are my goals. This is what I want to do. It's a strong fucking move. It's a move that only certain countries would ever even think of doing. But we're Russia. You know, we're proud and we're, we're a fucking superpower. We have a long civilizational history and we're not going to take shit. You can see how that would be in his mind, whether you agree with it or not. And that that obliterates, in my opinion, this idea that even that move into Ukraine was fundamentally irrational. It could have been miscalculated. He could have been wrong about it. But it, he, but it, tactically, it could have been, this is going to be a surprise attack. They're going to have to scramble to get their shit together. And uh, we could actually make some gains, especially if, from Putin's perspective, he feels like we've tried to compromise. We've tried to ask for a neutral Ukraine. We're continually getting pushed further and further back into a corner. So I'm letting it rip this time. So I don't know that that to me does not qualify as irrational, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. Right, right. Um, well, you know, I I don't really have a whole lot to say about the irrational action sort of thing. I mean, I think uh, we can only get so far in or psychologizing, you know, the head of Putin. But I will say that, like. Also written in 1997, 
Foundations of Geopolitics. Well, actually, there was a book by Zbigniew Brzezinski called The Grand Chessboard. And in uh, some of the latest public remarks by Alexander Dugin, he specifically talks about the move into Ukraine being a pushback against like a game of chess between Zbigniew Brzezinski and Putin. Mm. And basically, U.S. hegemony being dominant, he relates it to like Zbigniew Brzezinski or the U.S. playing a one-player game of chess. And it's Putin asking if I can join the game and move a piece. Mm. And this is him moving a piece, um, asserting that Fukuyama was wrong and Samuel P. Huntington was absolutely right. Um, so this is, it, it, it all ties back into a lot of like John Mearsheimer realist perspective stuff as well. Um, and, and so I, I think that there's multiple layers that you have to look at this stuff through. There's the layer of uh, realpolitik, you know. Mm -hmm. um, there's the layer of, say, Russian interest and, and Putin interests. There's the layer of ideology with Dugin and his ultimate aspirations for returning to pre-modernity and uh, um, being a linchpin of the far right. Um, and there's also, like, different layers of Russian history blended into this within, like, uh, you know, Russia feeling that like they have to save Europe from Europe and having a history of actually saving Europe in the Second World War. Um, so it's a really complex topic, man, and I'm really happy that you uh, allowed me to, to talk at length about all this stuff um, because this is where my head's been at for a little while now, and, uh, and it's just, you know, it's great to be able to have a conversation like this to where you can kind of point people to is like if you really want to learn about the multiple layers and nuance of, of this entire topic um one conversation that covers a really wide landmass uh you know <laughs> for sure, for sure. <laughs> it is really cool to have yeah yeah well absolutely man and this has been a this has been a wonderful conversation i'm really glad you reached out to me with this idea um i had not dug into dugan before this and then after we agreed to do this i went down the, the full rabbit hole um and it, it's a fascinating rabbit hole for sure um, and I really appreciate you coming on here, not only to uh, flesh some of this stuff out and and talk about Dugan and and understand his ideas and, and his influence, but also to to be a really good sport and kind of go back and forth a little bit around our disagreements. Um, you know, it doesn't happen a lot where people on the left can sit down and have a principled disagreement about certain elements. We agree on most of it. Here's where I think you're a little off. Here's where you think I'm a little off, etc. That's an important thing to do, and I really appreciate you being willing. Uh, to to come and and do that and uh, yeah it's been fascinating I would love to have you back on because as I said before we started recording I think we have lots of shared interests including in philosophy and I think we could do a lot of really interesting stuff working together on the philosophical front um, but yeah but before I let you go though can you do you have any last words do you have anything that you you wanted to say that you didn't get out any anything you want to say before we wrap up um you know I think that I mean. There's there's a couple books that are that have guided me a lot through this process. One of them is War for Eternity by Benjamin Teitelbaum. If you want like a quick kind of hook, line, and sinker into all these things we've been discussing, uh, Benjamin's book is incredible. Um, and he goes through, I mean, he actually sat down and interviewed Steve Bannon uh, for 20 on the hour or on the record uh, hours. Wow. And uh, the content of that book is, is fascinating, and that's what cued my initial interest into all of this stuff. Uh, another book is called um, Black Wind, White Snow by Charles Clover, and that book is fascinating because it details uh, some of the things we talked about with like uh, Nikolai Chubitskoy and Roman Jacobson. Uh, he also has a lengthy uh, it, like 
the latter half of the book is all about Alexander Dugan, and I have not gotten to that point yet in that book. But the book is fascinating as it details uh, the origins of Eurasianism as an ideology, as ideas. Um, let's see, there's a, uh, I can't remember her name right now, but there's a French scholar, um, and I sent you the PDF of this, of her section on Alexander Dugan. Um, her last name is Larlel, I believe. Um, Anyway, so that she has a wonderful. Um, she is probably the world's foremost expert in Alexander Dugin, and so uh, her work is. Um, it's it's very you know I, I learned a lot from reading her stuff. Um, there's a lot of YouTube videos out there. You can look a lot of this stuff up. It's not hard to find. Um, but again, a lot of the stuff that I'm telling you is just stuff that I read, that I absorbed, that I spoke with other people about, and um, you know I'm also I mean. Any of the listeners are free to contact me with questions about this stuff if they like as well. Um, you know, there'll be links to my socials and stuff like that and show notes, I presume. So uh, I would encourage anyone that has questions about this to reach out as well. I'm always happy to chat about this endlessly fascinating, horrible sort of shit, man. Yeah, you know? <laughs> totally. Um, so, yeah. Sweet. Yeah. And, um, you know, there's, he also, as, as you mentioned, he speaks many languages, including uh, English. So there are plenty of interviews out there even very recent ones, uh, where he's speaking in his own words to an English audience. Keep in mind, as you said earlier, that he knows who his audiences are, and if you listen to multiple interviews with different you know, perspectives uh, from the interviewer, you'll kind of see how he shifts some of his ideas and some of the ways he talks and his emphasis, uh, depending on who he's talking to. And I think that in and of itself is pretty uh, interesting and, and revealing. But yeah, lots of great recommendations. Now, before I let you go, though, can you let listeners know where they can find you, your podcast, and your work in general online? Yeah, so uh, my podcast is called No Easy Answers, and you can find that wherever you find a podcast. It's a Marxist podcast about politics, philosophy, and the human condition. Uh, and that's kind of my main project at the moment. You can find me on Twitter. I am at Real Jules Taylor, R-E-A-L-J-U-L-E-S-T-A-Y-L-O-R. Um, I'm also a musician. I have a couple albums out, and that stuff is on all the streaming platforms if you just look up Jules Taylor. Um, it, during the pandemic, my focus has been on this podcast, and... Uh, facilitating community so i'm just like running a bunch of sound these days uh because i, I missed people gathering in you know dark rooms with loud music and dancing and experiencing joy um so that's <laughs> what yeah. I, I i had uh you know sort of uh that's what i've been doing for work lately but yeah you can follow me on twitter you can find me on social media um no easy answers wherever you can find podcasts and my music is just if you look up jules taylor there's a couple of albums where i play a bunch of instruments uh, on them so Beautiful. Yeah, I will link to uh, as much of that as possible in the show notes so people can easily find you. Thank you again, my brother. This was a fascinating conversation. Let's do it again sometime. All right.
Keep pining for you